are in Baird Country. Okay, welcome to Baird Country. Today we have Adam Schultz. Adam is a national best-selling author. He has canoed across the Arctic. He's canoed through the Great Lakes to the Arctic on another trip. He is an archaeologist. He has a PhD from McMaster University, and he is the one of the most hardcore, if not the most hardcore, uh, backcountry, remote Arctic travelers by canoe and authors, I would say, in the world at this point. Well, thank you, Jim. That's very nice of you to say. You're very welcome. Was that uh, was that a pretty good rendition? That was one of the best introductions yeah. I've ever had. Yeah. You're a natural at this. Thank you. You thank missed you. your calling. You should have been I, doing this years ago. Oh, Adam, I'm merely just a man. <laughs> so I just finished your book, um, Where the Falcon Flies, uh, and w- I've watched a whole bunch of your stuff. But uh, man, there's so many stories in there. And there's one I remember. You're on the Coppermine River in the barren grounds and you are you're pulling your canoe upriver, standing in your canoe pushing with a pole against this really really strong current and with so many miles to go in front of you what what uh i guess what was going through your mind when when there was all these miles in front of you to go and this current was pushing back at you yeah, that was the journey alone across the yeah. Arctic, almost 4,000 kilometers. Yeah. And I'd done a lot of homework beforehand mm-hmm. trying to invent a route that would get me from right. the Yukon to basically Hudson's Bay. Mm-hmm. And I studied as many different rivers, waterways as possible. But I knew inevitably I'd have to do a fair amount of upstream travel, which uh-huh. naturally you'd want to avoid if you could. But yes. there's no way to cross that many different watersheds and travel yeah. downstream every single time. You're starting in the Bering Sea watershed. So most of the rivers are flowing west. Yeah. You've got to get to the Hudson's Bay watershed where most of the rivers are flowing east. And uh-huh. in between and all that vast geography, uh, you have major river systems like the Copper Mine, which is flowing almost due north, the Mackenzie River. Mm-hmm. So I looked at it from as many different perspectives as possible mm-hmm. to try to minimize the upstream travel. But there was no getting around the Copper Mine mm-hmm. River. I knew this is going to be the hardest part of my entire, entire journey. It was the only part that really filled me with any sort of doubt yeah. where I didn't know if my plan would be feasible. Right. I had not been to the Coppermine River before, but I read up on it as much as I could. And I knew it's a very powerful river, mm-hmm. very, very strong, rip-roaring current, whitewater rapids, canyons. Mm-hmm. Is upstream travel even possible on it? I couldn't find any account of anyone trying to go I've upstream on it. never heard of anybody doing it. And every single wilderness canoeist, people who paddled in the Arctic before, when they heard that I wanted to go upstream, just laughed at me and said, that guy's an idiot. (laughs) That's completely impossible. That's like trying to canoe up the Niagara River. It's just not going to happen. Right. Um, But my sort of, I don't know, my secret weapon, my Mm. fallback plan in any scenario, I've always believed in the tortoise versus the hare. That mm-hmm. slow and steady wins the race. And that Mm -hmm. what at first glance might seem impossible in fact, can be accomplished if you're simply patient mm-hmm. and you just keep putting one foot in front of the other. If you stay determined and mentally mm-hmm. strong, you'll get there eventually. So my strategy was, I know the current is going to be impossible to paddle mm-hmm. up. There's going to be no paddling. I don't even know if I can pull off the bottom. It might be too deep. Mm-hmm. Current might be too strong even for that. Mm-hmm. But if all else fails, I can portage along the side, mm-hmm. or maybe I can walk along the side and, and 
basically line the canoe or mm-hmm. tow it with a rope. Or mm-hmm. if I can't use a rope because there's too many obstructions, boulders and things, mm-hmm. I can grab onto it with my hand. So I, mm-hmm. I was like, with all these different options on the table, yeah. one way or another, I have to be able to get up this river. Yeah. And by the time I got to the Coppermine River, I was like two months into this journey. So yeah. I had two months of effort to get yeah. to that spot in the yeah. middle of the wilderness. And I'm like, there's no way I'm quitting right. and turning back now. So even yeah. if it takes me another month, I'm going to get up this river. And yeah. I think it was about 500... 522 kilometers is the number stuck in my head that I had to go. Wait, wait a minute. You went up the, the copper mine for 522 kilometers. But the good news is that a lot of that is the lake. Yeah. So there, it flows right. through some lakes. So okay. I knew that I would have relief. So piece of cake then, right? So the only, yeah. the hard part was like, I thought, I think yeah. it was just over 200 kilometers of like pure river with extremely strong current. Right. And I'm like, in the grand scheme of things, 200 kilometers mm. isn't that bad. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I can't do more than 10 kilometers a day and it's going to take me 20 days. The first day was the hardest. I remember I did 13 kilometers and it was mm-hmm. brutal. Yeah. It took like everything. Like there yeah. were times where I would just be dragging the canoe with my hand, kind of stumbling along the shore, which is all like loose rocks and boulders about the size of a skull. So it yeah. really easy to lose your grip on. Yeah. And there were times where I'd come to cliffs and I'd be like, well, now it's blocked. What am I going to do? Well, I'm going to have to try to ferry across to the far side of the river where there's no cliff uh-huh. and then edge my way up there. And there was very little polling in that first section because the current was just too strong even to pull or there were too many boulders and obstructions mm-hmm. in the river. So it was just a lot of like dragging the canoe along the bank, mm-hmm. sometimes using a rope and mm-hmm. uh, lining with the rope, which mm-hmm. would always be dicey because I'd be up above on rocks or cliffs mm-hmm. and realizing, you know, if I do this, if I make one mistake, this thing's going to flip over. So I try to avoid that as much as I could. Mm-hmm. But my mindset was like the tortoise and the hare. If I just keep going, mm-hmm. I'm going to get up this river. Mm-hmm. And once I'm up it, it's just a couple more thousand kilometers and I'm at the end of this <laughs> route. So there yeah. we go. Yeah. And then that, that copper mine was just a, a, a part of the entire journey. So how, how many days did it take you for your upriver part on the copper mine? How many days did that take you? 500 and whatever kilometers. Well, some of that was lake as well. Yeah. I think there's a couple of weeks, I think. Yeah. I can't remember off That's the top of my head. That's pretty good. Yeah. And you probably were in really good shape by that time too. Because oh, you'd already in, yeah. Yeah, so that, this is just, just to put it into perspective for people, when you were traveling from Eagle Plains all the way to uh mel no to um uh baker lake baker lake i was gonna say melville lake they kind of look similar on the map <laughs> um this is just a two-week section so imagine by the time you got to copper mine you're probably in like extremely good physical shape right yeah. if you like started your trip out doing that you might not have made that kind of time like i noticed myself um the I think the most hardcore upriver thing I've ever done is going up part of the George, about 12 kilometers on the George, which was, which was very challenging. And I noticed when I get into a trip like that, just your ability to jump from rock to rock and you, you really like, you start to be able to become kind of a, a well-honed machine when you're in an adventure like that after a while. Oh yeah. People ask me all the time, what kind of training do you do to get Mm. in shape for an expedition? Mm. I'm like, well, I always think of the expedition Mm. is the training in the first two weeks is like your crash course after two weeks, you should mm-hmm. be uh, ready to go. So mm-hmm. I, I think like the actual lifestyle mm-hmm. is the training. And, and on a long journey, that journey was four months. So I was like... Mm-hmm. Oh, it was four months. Four oh, months, okay. Yeah. I got mixed up. I thought it was only three. But three well, only, you kind of mixed up three. two different expeditions. Oh, okay. Where yeah, the Falcon yeah. Flies is Lake Erie to the Arctic. Right, yes. Or that's yeah. beyond the trees yes. the Yukon. That's yeah. that's forgivable. Uh, no, I, I actually, I just, I, I didn't actually mix those up, but there are a few big trips that you've uh, that you've done, uh, to say the least. But um, yeah, I, what I mixed up, I think, was just Melville Lake compared to Baker Lake or something like that. And, and two different, like, you know, in my mind or whatever. But uh, no, that's a, 
quite the adventure. Oh, you mean by the time where the Falcon flies was was three months. Three, where the Falcon and flies is a three months journey. Baker Lake was was four months. A four months journey. Yeah, yeah. So were you? How much? I mean, so you have a window that you're working with here. It's not like you know you have how much food you have, and you know uh, you can catch fish, which you do sometimes as well. There's other ways to kind of get food on the land, but your main thing that you're racing against when you're in the Arctic in such a remote place like that is you're racing against winter right? Like the, wa the water is going to be hard. You're going to be snowshoeing. You're not going to have the kind of clothes uh, that you have. How close were you by the time you got to Melville Lake um, before it frees up? Well, probably it wouldn't actually yeah. get too cold for another four weeks, but the big yeah. factor that was really limiting canoeing by September, end of August in the Hudson Bay watershed is wind. Okay. Uh, yeah. Because I was coming from the west to the east, yeah. uh, prevailing winds are sweeping off of yeah. western Hudson's Bay, and it's making almost impossible headwinds that you can't paddle against. Okay. Yeah. As the summer goes on, temperatures warm up, the wind gets worse and worse. Most yeah. people will tell you, you know, the, the good wind window pretty mm -hmm. much comes to an end by the middle of August. I knew no matter what, inevitably, mm -hmm. I would need a lot more time than the middle of August. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking, you know, by middle of September, third week of September, conditions are really deteriorating. And mm -hmm. at that point, you have to f figure on almost one out of every two days is a day that you're mm. you're shore bound because the wind is mm. now too strong to paddle. One out of every two. Oh, easily. Yeah, yeah wow. easily. Uh, there's an, a one of the. I mean, when I did all my homework reading through past mm -hmm. reports, there was one from the '70s. I think it was for the Federal Ministry of Natural Resources. Mm -hmm. A dozen guys on a canoe trip in what was then the Northwest Territories, now Nunavut. They mm. were wind bound for two weeks on a point where oh, they wow. couldn't canoe at wow. all because the wind. Night and day was yeah. relentless. So even if you wanted to sleep during the day and try to get out of there at night, taking advantage of the midnight sun, they still couldn't do that because the wind was just Wouldn't relentlessly stop. howling. Yeah, that is now that is such a, a challenging feeling to be windbound because what keeps going through your head is, is this ever going to end? I remember I was on the Beaufort Sea at the most of the Kuju on Western Victoria Island. We were windbound for four or five days. And that felt like two weeks easily. And we actually were stupid. And we just, we decided, well, it died down. I guess it's always just like this here. And we just like went out there and started paddling in it, which was extremely dangerous. And, you know, we didn't make it far. Fortunately, we were okay. But uh, to imagine having to be pinned down by wind like that. And if you get into the water, you, you, like in your situation, what would happen if you tried paddling in that? Well, it depends yeah. on the circumstances. Yeah. I mean, I know that exact scenario yeah. you're describing where you're windbound and, mm. you know, minutes feel like hours, hours mm. feel like days. Yes. And even yeah. though you know this isn't rational, the wind has yeah. to die down, your your body's telling you you're stuck here forever, right. you just have to go, and then you end up taking risks that you didn't intend to. And yeah. we've all been in that yeah. scenario That's on what any I long did. canoe journeys. I regret you. A terrible way to learn, but I sure as hell learn my lesson out there doing that. Oh, know? I've taken many risks too, where yeah, I shouldn't have yeah. paddled in high winds on Hudson's Bay yeah. or even on the Great Lakes on my most recent journey, paddling on Lake Erie, Lake Ontario. There were times when yeah. I should have been on shore, but you know, then you have this urban landscape, highways, people looking at you and you're like, I just want to get out of here. Yeah. So I'm yeah. going to risk it. And yeah. it depends on where, which direction the wind's coming from. If mm -hmm. it's a headwind, tailwind, if there are waves, if there are no waves, all these things have to be taken into account. Mm -hmm. um, but that was really what was driving me on is, yes, the deteriorating uh, weather in terms yes. of temperatures and ice, yeah. but also the wind. I knew the wind is only going to get worse. I remember yeah. there was a day on August 8th on my journey, and I came to a lake in the central Arctic, and the wind was just howling. There were yeah. huge white caps. 
I tried to paddle into them, but it was impossible. It was just pinning me on shore. And what was constantly in my mind was it's only August 8th. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. I can't imagine in another yeah. month what the wind's going to be like on September 8th yeah. when yeah. the really strong, almost hurricane force winds come. Yeah. So I was trying to push on as much as I could. Yeah. There were a few times on my route where I wasn't on a lake, I was on a river. Uh-huh. And it's like, okay, well, now at least there's no white caps. Mm-hmm. I can keep going, but the wind mm-hmm. would be so strong. I mean, I was on the Hanbury River mm-hmm. and I'd be paddling down it and I'd be like spinning like a corkscrew, mm-hmm. where even though the current was strong, normally you could just sit on this river and the current would do all the work, but the wind yeah. coming up easily overpowered the current and would push yeah. me back up the river. I ended up shifting all the weight in my canoe to the bow. So the bow would lo- sit right. lower in the water, yeah. catch less wind. Yeah. And just paddle as hard as I could mm. to edge into the wind down this river mm. along the mm-hmm. banks. Eventually, when I couldn't do that, mm-hmm. I strapped on my waders, got my rope, and just dragged the canoe behind yeah. me. I was thinking, yeah. you know, again, tortoise the hair, even if I'm only doing one yeah. kilometer an hour, that's better than zero kilometers yeah. an hour. And psychologically, it's a lot better than just sitting there thinking this wind is never going to let up. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I can really relate to that on a, a smaller scale, just breaking it up. I don't have to go another thousand kilometers. I just got to do five. I do that with portage. I don't think I have four kilometers ago. I say 300 meters and then I take a break. 300 meters, I take a break. And it seems way easier at the end of the day. I, I remember watching um, Alone. Uh, no, which was that which was your documentary called again alone across the Arctic. Uh, alone across the arctic which is on youtube it's on amazon prime as well um so you're filming this but that's the trip that you also wrote your boat uh your your book uh beyond the trees yes. on that trip yeah. and so you're you're journaling you're filming there's a lot of other things than just your own survival while you're out there too how much more does that does the uh the documenting of your journey for your books take in addition to the filming um while you're out there well i mean there are times when you're so exhausted you feel like i can't possibly pick up a pencil and write anything in my notebook right but i always force myself to because i find that my best writing material happens in the moment okay now when i'm paddling and battling the wind that's impossible you'd be Mm. foolhardy to try to whip out your journal but what Mm. i do is i try to discipline myself (laughs) to write at least uh once a day every day on a long journey while it's still fresh and vivid in my mind usually that's the end of the day the last thing i do before falling asleep in my tent I'll scribble as many notes into mm-hmm. my journal as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, anything I saw during the day that I want to remember, any metaphors that came to me, like, oh, man, the cliffs mm-hmm. on that lake looked exactly like some ruined Scottish castle, the way the light was hitting it. Mm-hmm. I'll try to write that down in the moment. Otherwise, I'll Beautiful. never remember it, right? Yeah, so, yeah, amazing. Uh, that's what I yeah. do. Now, as far as filmmaking goes, I yeah. admire guys like you who do the filming because right. I think that's way more time-consuming. Yeah, I've only ever really filmed one of my journeys, which was Alone Across the Arctic, Yeah, which I was thinking I had to do by necessity, hoping to offset some of the costs I incurred. Mm-hmm. But I really think of myself as a writer. Writing books is my bread and butter mm-hmm. Uh, that's what comes more naturally to me. So I enjoy yeah. the writing. I can't complain about that. Filmmaking yes. is hard. Then you have to set up cameras, take them down. Charge them. You had some exactly. experience keeping a, trying to keep things charged out yeah, there as well. Yeah, a pencil, you just sharpen it with your pocket knife, yeah. and then you're good to go. Cameras, right. you have to fiddle with solar panels or extra batteries, and yeah. it's a lot more work that goes into that. And, uh, yeah, that that's like a whole other thing. So when I did my most recent long journey from Lake Erie yeah. to the Arctic, that was 3,400 kilometer journey. Uh-huh. And I just thought into it, you know, I'm not really going to put any effort into filmmaking. Yes, right. I'll bring my GoPros and hit play when I'm going through rapids or waves. But I was mm-hmm. like, 
I really just writing is what brings me joy. Right. I like writing books. Yeah. So I'm just going to focus on that and film incidentally. Yeah. Because as you know, if you want to make something with a good production values, yeah. you have to devote a lot of time just to filming. And I, I put in a lot more How effort. How do you do both, right? It's difficult. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. I, I've, I've always thought about trying to write a book. Um, I don't have the the background in in history. One of the things I find so fascinating of your of your books is that you really have two stories. You have your story of where you're going, but then you have the story of historic uh, historical events that happened in that area. And it was, geez, it was a few years back. You ended up writing a book on it. Um, this was your Alone Against the North, which was your first book. And uh, I, I remember you got onto my radar. I think it was like an article in the Toronto Star or something like that. And you were doing the Again River. And this is a river that has no record of travel on it, right? And uh, what, I, what I think captured people is that you found a waterfall, unfortunately, by accidentally going over it, but then realized, okay, there is no, this isn't documented. And I think just the idea, uh, which, which really got a, you a ton of interest and a ton of uh, media exposure is that, hey, there's still things out there. Uh, that haven't been discovered. And were you a, a Canadian uh, geographic explorer in residence at that time? Or No, I was doing yeah. an expedition for the Royal Canadian Geographical okay. Society, but I didn't yeah. become an uh, explorer in residence until 2018. Yeah. Right. Yeah, okay. that was, that's taking me back a while. That was yeah. 10 years ago, a decade ago. Right, right. Was and that was your that first book, which really people really gravitated to. And that that's sort of what what spawned your career after, as a writer after that, I suppose. Eh? Yeah, that was my first yeah. book. When I yeah. wrote it, I remember thinking, like, I don't know if anyone's ever going to read this. Right. If 100 people had read yeah. that book, I would have been, like, blown away. I can't believe yeah. 100 people yeah. uh, read this book. But yeah. as it turned out, that book became a national bestseller. I think it spent yeah. something like 24 weeks on the national bestseller list. Right. And right. I was shocked by that. I yeah. really didn't expect there would be so much appetite for mm. old-fashioned adventure stories mm. or canoeing stories. But mm -hmm. I try to take a different approach to writing the book. I mean, as you alluded to, I, I weave a lot of history into the story. Yes. Yeah. So that's my natural background. Uh, my PhD is in history and archaeology. Mm -hmm. And if I could, I would just write pure history books. Mm -hmm. That's what mm -hmm. I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis. I'll I be love like, history. Yeah, love I'll be it. neck deep in research yeah. on uh, Vikings in the Arctic. And mm -hmm. I'll be like, I wish I could just write an academic article on this. But You could just really write a pay. book on one of my Arctic trips as Vikings in the Arctic. Well, know? that I that get, could work. I get called a Viking. <laughs> I don't know why. It's, it's crazy. If you can go back in time yeah. a thousand years ago, I would be yeah. all over that. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, Or put me uh, in time a thousand years from now and then I'll yeah. do it. But I like history. Yeah. And the older, yeah. the better. Uh, from yeah. my perspective. So I tried to weave a lot of history into my books. And yeah. 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 I was surprised that it, that the books have done as well as they have. Yeah. And what, so what, what kind of uh, gave you the, the feeling of right? Like obviously you have a background, but this was your first book. What was it that, that kind of triggered you and that said, that told you, Hey, I want to be able to write a book. I'm going to do it. Like what was going through your mind when you decided to take that leap and put it all on the table and just start putting pen to paper? Well, I'd written a lot ever since I was a teenager. I'd written yeah. hundreds of articles. Uh, my mm -hmm. first published article, I was still in high school mm -hmm. and I kept writing as a teenager and all into my twenties mm -hmm. as a student, um, freelance here and there. I, I, my first published pieces, I wrote a column called reflections of a naturalist. We were mm -hmm. all about wildlife 
and environmental issues, conservation, mm -hmm. uh, all different wild animals in Canada. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of experience writing under my belt, even at the time that I wrote my first uh, book. Yeah. Okay. And it was actually, I didn't do anything. A, a literary agent came to me and said, mm -hmm. I've read a bunch of your articles and I know you do these expeditions for the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. And he mm -hmm. tried to persuade me write an actual book. And I said, mm -hmm. well, I love reading books, so I'd be mm -hmm. happy to write them. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, reading is, other than the wilderness, my, yeah. my my happy place on earth is in a library around books. Right. So I love reading. I'm always reading, you know, multiple books. A yeah. few years ago, I was asked to be a judge for a big literary prize, and I got to read yeah. 100 books in one summer. Wow. 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 <laughs> and uh, so I yeah. love reading, and yeah. it, it was sort of a natural transition to just to, to write something a little bit longer and I was lucky enough that an mm -hmm. agent had come along and, mm -hmm. and pitched the idea to me. He said, you should write a book about your expedition mm -hmm. to the Again River. And I said, okay, mm -hmm. I don't think anyone's going to read it, but if you're, uh, if you're convinced, <laughs> yeah. I'll do it just for the, for the joy, right? Yeah. And I will do that sometimes for my own amusement. I'll just write stories that I don't publish and mm -hmm. I don't ever want to submit. Mm -hmm. But I just, uh, for the fun of it, mm -hmm. enjoy putting the pen to the paper and writing a story. It could be like, I'm going to write this gothic Halloween story. Mm -hmm. It's going to be really fun. And it's just mm -hmm. for me. Um, mm -hmm. So I'll do that. You know, that's mm -hmm. just part of the process. So this is a passion of yours. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah. And that's what. So you're able to basically take your passion of nature, of canoeing, of history, and also sort of reliving history on your own two feet in a way by following some of these uh, historic routes. Like one of the things that was really striking was uh, uh, to me is in your book, Where the Falcon Flies was paddling on Lake Erie. I, I'm going to be honest with you. I had no idea Lake Erie was this interesting. Yeah. And I'm just reading this book. I'm like, I got to go to Lake Erie. I'm always going north. I got to go to Turkey Point and, and you know, some of these places that you mentioned because uh, I think we forget the amount of history, battles, shipwrecks, pirates that even existed on the Great Lakes. And you really kind of brought that to life uh, in a very interesting way, which I guess was different than most of your trips, which are in the far north, uh, northern reaches of Canada, the Arctic, and all these kind of places that give goosebumps to the adventurous at heart when you hear the name Labrador. So what was it like to trying to trying to paddle in somewhere that's more of an urban landscape for a guy that's like this Northern traveler? Well, I mean, I knew it was going to be a different challenge than anything I'd ever mm -hmm. attempted before. I was like, I'm literally going to have to camp in Toronto. I'm going to have to camp in yeah. Montreal with my canoe, my yeah. tent. I had no idea what to expect, but I just thought it was all part of the adventure. Mm -hmm. I didn't have anything worked out ahead of time. I just thought mm -hmm. wherever I end up, I end up. If I have to sleep under the Burlington Skyway, I'll sleep mm -hmm. under the Burlington Skyway. If I have to sleep <laughs> under the Jacques Cartier Bridge in Montreal, yeah. I'll sleep under the Jacques Cartier Bridge. But yeah, yeah it was partly the, the thought of the history yeah. and getting to see it from a unique perspective from the stern of my canoe mm -hmm. uh, that appealed to me and led me down that path to mm -hmm. setting off from Lake Erie to the Arctic. I was mm -hmm. like, you know, adventure is everywhere. We don't necessarily have to be deep mm -hmm. in the wilderness to experience adventure. You could mm -hmm. canoe the Hudson River to New York City right. if you wanted to, and that would be a totally different type of adventure. Right. Um, yeah. So that, and I partly was motivated by, you know, I yeah. really want to make a record of what Canada looks like in the year 2022 mm -hmm. um, through my own eyes. You know, mm -hmm. this is what it's like uh, paddling underneath the Burlington Skyway or alongside mm -hmm. the Toronto waterfront home to millions of people. Mm -hmm. uh, the good, the bad, everything. I want to put it in here. The litter. Mm -hmm. um, oh, I don't think I'm going to camp here because there's so many discarded needles 
Right, um, right. I'm going to go over here. And then you find yeah. wonderful surprises. Like, look at all this yeah. amazing green space where I never expected to find it in Scarborough. Mm -hmm. This is like a natural paradise. It's an oasis. Mm -hmm. um, here I am in the biggest city in all of Canada, but mm -hmm. I feel like I'm Robinson Crusoe on mm -hmm. some uninhabited island because it's right. a cold, rainy day. Yeah. It's deserted. There's hardly even a dog walker around. Right. And here I am setting up my tent within the city limits of Toronto, backed yeah. by this rich Carolinian forest, you know, shagbark hickory, yeah. cottonwood. Right. I mean, it, it is feeling like stepping back yeah. in time. So I loved every moment of it. And mm -hmm. that entire journey, I mean, I count my lucky stars because it was like every day was a revelation. I saw things I never expected mm -hmm. and I would stumble like sometimes, you know, I'd be in Quebec in some small village and I stumble upon some old stone chateau that's 300 years old. Other mm -hmm. times it would be a tree that was like 400 years old. Wow. A glimpse of an Arctic species like mm -hmm. a semi-pulminated sandpiper or a peregrine mm -hmm. falcon flying to yes. the Arctic. Yeah. I mean, it gave me a real appreciation that there's yeah. nature in everyone's neighborhood on everyone's yeah. doorstep and it really reinforced to me uh, the ties that bind Canada's landscapes, uh -huh. whether you live in southernmost Ontario or the Arctic, it's all mm. interconnected. And you could right. do a journey um, from one place on the map to another. The only limit is really our own imagination. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, to me, it was just, yeah, a wonderful experience throughout. Mm. I, wasn't it so interesting how it was the falcon, your favorite bird, which everyone knows is like the most badass bird out there. Their diving speeds are 200 miles an hour or something like that. Yeah. And uh, essentially what you're doing is you're following where you were living on Lake Erie at the time. You're more or less following a route of the falcon migrating north to the Arctic to where they nest and when where they have their young. And did you ever sit back after you walked the Trans Labrador Highway, uh, part of which I've driven it multiple times, which to me is like monumental accomplishment. But when you when you put in, once you got to, uh, uh, well, it was the sorry, it was the Quebec. You, what, what's the one from? It was the from Three Bay eight, Coma nine, yeah. three eight nine. Sorry, yeah. not the Trans Labrador. Yeah. It gets into the Trans Labrador, and then you started at Labrador City. Put your canoe in there, and then after you know looking back after being paddling past Toronto, these skyscrapers being on the great lakes, what did it feel like? Was it just surreal or what was the emotion to be in this like deep wilderness area, literally by your own means after passing these sort of much more urban areas? Yeah, it was definitely a contrast. There were yeah. contrasts throughout. I mean, yeah. uh, in some ways, just to go back to Lake Erie or rural mm. Lake Ontario, that was a shocking contrast from the GTA. Right. And this is something that was very strange. Like you yeah. could be on eastern Lake Ontario around the Bay of Quinte or Port yeah. Hope. And that in itself already feels like a world away from Toronto. Uh -huh. Right. It's a entirely different experience to be paddling through uh, cow farms and cornfields yeah. in woodlots than it is to be paddling beside skyscrapers and traffic right. and yeah. asphalt and concrete and glass yeah. so labrador was another contrast now i'm like yeah. oh this is boreal forest and balsam yeah. fir and black spruce and yeah. i'm in another landscape but right. i saw it as all sort of interconnected on any long journey interesting like and if you're doing separate. a, a yeah. road trip i guess across canada mm -hmm. you're going to see like oh the hundredth meridian the great plains begin and mm -hmm. come out of the the rugged Canadian shield and the forest around, uh, mm. you know, Lake of the Woods, now I'm on the mm. plains, and then you get to the Rocky Mountains mm -hmm. in Alberta, and finally you end up on the temperate rainforest on the Pacific coast. But it's like everything is different, but it's all interconnected. And that's sort mm. of how I felt on this journey. Yeah. And it was sort of like the gradual transitions. Everything is blending in, right? Yeah. So as I'm getting into northern Quebec, even along the St. Lawrence, it's like it's really getting a lot more wild here, right? Mm -hmm. um, cell towers, they're disappearing, that was the last farm. That was one thing I was interested in is where's the most northern farm in Quebec? Yeah. 
And yeah. like, you know, when you're in the St. Lawrence Valley, mm-hmm. uh, there's it's farm country. There's lots of farms. But as you're mm-hmm. getting north of Quebec City, the farms start to peter out. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, man, there's still the odd farmer. Mm-hmm. They must have a great family history, how they're mm-hmm. holding on here mm-hmm. um, in this very rugged, rocky landscape. And mm-hmm. then eventually you come to a place where there's no farms mm-hmm. and you see uh, it's transforming. Now there's still towns here, but uh, the lo- economy is now based on... Um, lumber right it's all it's all forestry here Mm -hmm. and eventually those disappear as well and you get into the more Mm -hmm. mining areas so i Mm -hmm. was interested in really the whole picture of what does canada look like in the 21st century and yeah you see like okay here at toronto obviously the economy is based around the digital age there's thousands of people just in that one building Mm -hmm. working on computers here it's all farming here it's forestry here it's mining right so as a yeah. geographer uh, that must be such a, a deeper way of learning a- about geography and and pe- like you, you ever see it was i think lord of the rings where gandalf said uh you know the world is not in your books and maps it's out there you know like talk about you could read about everything you just explained in a book but when you're getting out there and you're traveling by traditional means and you're actually seeing this I imagine that your understanding and knowledge of it almost kind of goes beyond what even could really be described in writing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I, I wish that our education mm-hmm. curriculum, that there was a way for it to have more field trips mm-hmm. because subjects like geography or history, you really mm-hmm. can't learn just from the printed page. Right. Um, there's such a visual component where you actually have to go out and visit these sites or walk in a forest. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's amazing nowadays people can study even forestry Mm-hmm. But if it's all on a computer, then you go out in a forest and it's like it's an alien environment where you right. barely recognize the tree species you're looking at. Right. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm a big believer in getting it out on the land. Yeah. One thing geographers do, which I enjoy, yeah. I mean, I love looking at maps, don't get me wrong, but mm-hmm. they classify all different ecosystems. Mm-hmm. And it'll be like, okay, here's southern Ontario, let's shade it in purple. This is Carolinian zone, Carolinian mm-hmm. forest, just along Lake St. Clair, Detroit River. Lake Mm -hmm. Erie into Niagara. And then let's shade in the next one. Let's pick a different color, orange. We'll call this Great Lake St. Lawrence Forest. Let's shade it all the way up to Mm -hmm. Magneto on. And we'll say that, you know, the characteristic species are red oak and and Mm -hmm. red pine and and sugar maple and silver Mm -hmm. birch. And then let's come up with another color. Okay, well, let's use um, yellow and we'll shade in boreal forest. And we'll Mm -hmm. say it starts right here at Tomogamy. So on the map, it's all cut and dried where it's like this is one zone. This is another ecosystem. But partly what appealed to me about this journey was like, I want to actually see it in real time because, of course, those divisions are not going to be clear cut. It's going to be like gradual over a week. Mm -hmm. You know, the cottonwoods start to fade out along the St. Lawrence and all of a sudden I'm noticing balsam fir. Further Mm -hmm. south, there was no balsam fir. It was all eastern hemlock. Mm -hmm. Well, Mm -hmm. where did that transition start? And Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, well, my Mm -hmm. map is not actually very precise. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. It's actually got Trois-Rivières wrong or something like this. So Mm -hmm. that's a fascinating uh, thing to see in real time. Also, the maps themselves. As, as you well know, topographic maps can still have mistakes on them and errors, right. especially when they're made by remote sensing, where you're yeah. only ever using a satellite or an air photo. Yeah. And trying to change that into a pictorial representation of what's out yeah. there. Human error can creep into the map, or mm. animals, beavers, they can change the landscape, they can flood something out, or an Which beaver dam over to years. you. Yeah, that happens in Labrador. Mm. So that's very exciting. I mean, I think partly people think. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's the year 2024. There's nothing left to explore. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything can just be seen on a laptop. But to me, mm-hmm. it's very exciting. It's very liberating to think, you know, I, I, to bring it back to your story of Gandalf, it's kind of mm-hmm. like we forget with all of our modern technology. Mm-hmm. In one sense, yes, the world is a shrinking place. We can do a podcast from anywhere. We can do a Zoom talk from anywhere. You can book a flight and fly halfway around the world. But mm-hmm. if we put away all that stuff and we get out 
under our own power, under our own steam, on foot or by canoe, the world is as big as it ever was. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. as big as it was in 10,000 BC, yeah. it's like that in 2024 when you start traveling by foot or by canoe. Yeah. And to me, that's so exciting because it opens up so many opportunities for yeah. adventure, for exploration. Just get out there and see it with your own eyes. Yeah, interesting. And it's it's hard to really understand what that means. It's, you know, take it back to when you were talking about uh, um, watersheds. The, the amount of people that have no idea what that means or, you know, because now you have a city and there's like a grid pattern of roads. The way that the land lies uh, means absolutely nothing to them. And of course, the way that the land lies is the way that water flows and the way that everybody used to travel and only a very few select people still do travel that way. I had a question today, a comment today on my YouTube channel, somebody asking me why the ocean is still, but yet the river that you're on is moving. You know what I mean? And it's just like, you know, and this guy wasn't embarrassed, asked what I would consider to be, you know, one of the dumbest questions I've ever heard. Well, don't say no, that. Yeah, I, no I dumb question. There's the, yeah, but I'm just like, you know, it just, it's not a dumb question. The guy's probably smarter than me in 10 other subjects. But I mean, you know, people have really kind of lost touch with that. And it's very hard to articulate uh, to somebody how much that resonates with you. Uh, crossing the height of land, which is, which is a, um, a divide between the way two watersheds flow and, uh, um, you know, what creates the rivers to flow, all these kinds of things. You really get to see the country, even, even by bicycle. Um, I've only ever done like one big kind of bike journey. Uh, wasn't anything super special, but I bike from like Toronto almost to Kingston. And by that time, my butt was like super, super sore and we were going to miss the homecoming parties in Kingston. So we just got to drive the rest of the way. <laughs> um, I was younger and I just remember seeing everything in a totally different light, all these small towns and stuff like that. And I would totally agree with you that uh, with with what you say is it's something that uh, more people got to get out there and see because it really changes your perspective. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. it's amazing the things we can explore in our own backyards. Yeah. I mean, we live life at such a, a fast pace now, yeah. traveling 100 kilometers down the highway in a vehicle mm. or flying even faster than that in an airplane. Mm. And you pass by all these places. And even, I mean, it's amazing. People can live their whole life in one town and not even explore what's in the radius around their town because it takes yeah. a lot of time and effort to just go out on foot. Yeah. And like your story of the bicycle ride from Toronto to Kingston, yeah. it's like maybe you've driven that 401 highway a hundred times, right. but it's like you didn't notice no. any of these little features. Not a thing. Until yeah. you slow it down and you actually mm -hmm. start to notice all this detail. So there's something definitely to be said mm -hmm. for traveling the old-fashioned way. Mm -hmm. And it can be very rewarding, right? I mean, that's partly what's so enjoyable about it. Even mm -hmm. if you're just hiking the Bruce Trail, which thousands of people do, mm -hmm. when you get up on some of the northern sections of the Bruce Trail, like around the Beaver Valley, it's like astonishing mm -hmm. how beautiful that is. Mm -hmm. When you're not driving by the highway super fast, right. but you're actually walking, and you can start to see, oh, I can understand why people would call this the mountain. Because right. when you're down below in that farm country, yeah. I mean, 200 years ago, when you didn't have the luxury of uh, Netflix and internet, yeah. this really would have seemed like a mountain. I mean, it's yeah. astonishing, the sudden relief here where the landscape just oh, thrusts yeah. up. 
Yeah. Um, so dramatically, right? So yeah. if you lived around there, that would seem like a mountain. Absolutely. And uh, Absolutely. yeah, I love how like that that name carries mm-hmm. on in local roads. Like it'll be Mountain Road, and it's like uh-huh. there's no mountains around. Well, here. in Hamilton, they call it the mountain. Exactly. Yeah, mountain. and it is a it is a yeah. mountain. I mean, yeah. in the old days, people lived life so much more mm-hmm. locally, right? So if you mm-hmm. were stuck at the head of the lake, you were born and raised there. Mm-hmm. Um, that really would be a mountain to you. Totally. And yeah. when you climb all the way up it, I mean, it's like wow, that was actually quite yeah. the climb. I got winded. And now look at this yeah. vista. Yeah. Uh, from the top of this peak here when when you when you're not in real mountains you don't have to climb up so high to get a good view yeah right where, where when you're in the rockies to get a great view i mean the view is incredible but you gotta like really put in some effort oh absolutely some sweat equity which is another thing what like people would look at this kind of stuff that 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 you do and say, why? Well, like, how is it? This doesn't look like fun, you know? And I, I would say, you know, people call it type two fun or people say, you know, it's fun afterwards, which I really like. Are you, are you ever in the time feeling just like miserable? Why have I done this? I don't want to go on. And how much time afterwards does some of those more challenging trips take to reflect on and say oh my god that was awesome what's the next trip yeah i mean uh, good questions when i was younger in my mm-hmm. teens early 20s mid 20s mm-hmm. uh many of the adventures i do like i would endure and just sort of grip my teeth and say i'm i've committed to a month i'm going to do this expedition yeah but there would be lots of miserable moments as you're describing where like the black flies are atrocious the mosquitoes mm-hmm. are horrible my feet are wet, the weather has been awful, but you would just sort of endure. And Mm -hmm. like you said, you'd look back upon it when you got home fondly. Yeah. But over time, I think I've sort of gradually learned to embrace even the the more adverse moments. Embrace the suck. Yeah. So when I'm paddling, I'll be like, you know, it's it's wet, but Mm -hmm. sometimes you feel more alive now Mm -hmm. that I'm soaking wet and the wind is, you know, blowing into my face and I'm paddling here. And I started to think to myself, you know, this is this is living. I feel like a very rich experience right. that I can't get when I'm staring at my laptop inside my house. Right. And I sort of I try to remind myself to be grateful mm-hmm. uh, for that moment that I'm lucky enough to have the opportunity to do this canoe journey and to mm-hmm. be here on this bay on the St. Lawrence River, paddling into this headwind outside mm-hmm. Trois Rivières and looking at these swamps where you know, mm-hmm. quarter of a millennium ago. An American army came here and fought the local French Canadians outside Trois Rivières in these swamps. And here am I paddling. There's a goes a green heron paddling into this same wind. And I'm like, man, this is such a rich experience. I'm Mm -hmm. counting my lucky stars that I'm able to experience Mm -hmm. it. So I kind of actually reproach Mm -hmm. myself in that moment. You're giving me goosebumps here, Adam. I'm reproaching myself in those moments. (laughs) Wow. Well, that's because you're an adventurer too. We're cut from the same cloth. So now you're you're getting out. You're like, I want to get out there and paddle Mm -hmm. that same river. Right. Experience that same thing, right? Right. Because you can relate to it. And that's what I tell myself. You know, I reproach myself in that moment and say, no, Mm -hmm. that's, you know, shame on me to feel, Mm -hmm. you know, regret that I'm here because Mm -hmm. I'm like, this is, this is what, I live for. This is mm-hmm. what you dreamed of as a seven-year-old kid mm-hmm. when the whole world was full of possibility and adventure mm-hmm. and wonder. I mean, I'm lucky mm-hmm. enough that in my mid-30s, I still experience this. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's what gets me motivated. I mean, mm-hmm. everyone has those moments where you wake up inside your tent and you're in your mm-hmm. sleeping bag and you're comfortable and it's like, eh, I just want to mm-hmm. sleep for another hour. Mm-hmm. But I tell myself, that's not why I came to these mountains or that's right. not why I came to the Arctic. Um, life is out there beyond the tent. Let's get out and start living mm-hmm. it. So, mm-hmm. you know, get busy living is the kind of thing I tell myself. Right on. Yeah. I, I remember hearing uh, Mike Horn and he was kite surfing across Alaska, or kite sailing across, no, Antarctica. And he kept telling himself the same thing. You know, if I, I'll progress, if I get 
out of the tent, which is much more of a just cut and dry point A to point B thing, you know, but I imagine he's trying to get to the end and he says, oh man, it'd be so, so comfortable to lie in my sleeping bag for a little bit more, but that's not why I'm here. And I guess that's where you're, that's kind of like what you're explaining of being there on the St. Lawrence and being in that place where, you know, all this has happened. That sounds like where you get your kind of passion and inspiration from. And I can see in ways that you're like me, as much as I'm, you know, inspired by your adventures and your books and by things other modern day people do it's for me, it's like a lot of my heroes, the people that I get my uh, inspiration from aren't around anymore. Yeah, You know what I mean? How can you do that? Well, I mean, in 1750, this wasn't a big deal, right? Well, how did they do it? Let's find out how they do it. Let's emulate that and do it. You know what I mean? And a lot of the time, that's what, who I'm inspired by is the early explorers, indigenous explorers, people that lived on the land and and did these, these amazing things. A lot of the time are what gets me going. Can you, can you relate to that? Oh, absolutely. I remind myself all the time. I mean, you have to use every little mental trick you can to stay motivated and tell yourself, oh, it's not that bad. Keep going. And that, that's definitely to me a major one, which I remind Mm -hmm. myself, Hey, people, generations past didn't have any of these modern gadgets and luxuries yeah they accepted hardship as simply a way of life i mean you don't even have to go back centuries you go back yes even more recently people grew up on a farm it was Mm. like (laughs) uh before you know before tractors and modern things every day was was hard labor Mm -hmm. from sun up to sundown Mm -hmm. and i tell myself like you know mentally physically they were just used to doing these kind of hardships that yeah. now we balk at. So I tell myself, mm-hmm. like, no, it's not that bad. Keep going. It's, it's all cer- mental. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think it's amazing how fast standards change, mm-hmm. right? Um, some new gadget comes out or some new piece of gear yeah. in like 2016. Yeah. And if by 2021, everyone isn't using it, it's like, you're insane. You're, right, you're reckless. Right. And it's like yeah. literally millions of <laughs> people yeah. didn't have yeah. this who went camping like all through the 70s yeah. and the 80s and the yeah. 90s. Right. And they themselves thought that they were already spoiled compared to what their grandparents right. were doing. Yeah. Um, now I'm like, is that Gore-Tex or Gore-Tex Pro? Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I got to have the Gore-Tex Pro. It's just, you know, of course, that's like way better than, you know, leather, you know, what people used to wear, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's like and a I, must. Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, now I'm lucky that I have mm-hmm. the kind of sponsors and, you know, I can mm-hmm. afford the better gear. But sometimes right. I think back to my earlier journeys when I was on a yeah. shoestring budget, yeah. you know, my gear was either homemade, yeah. came from garage sales or Canadian Tire. Well, the canoe you use on on the Again River uh, to begin with wasn't exactly a top-notch uh, oh, watercraft. Not, not at all. I mean, yeah. my when I, all my early canoe trips were with homemade canoes. Mm-hmm. My father and I, my brother, we used to build seat strip canoes or birch bark canoes and all of my canoe journeys were with Mm -hmm. those up until Mm -hmm. about my mid-20s okay and then at that point i was like it was actually more just there's a lot of work goes into these cedar strip canoes they're They're like a thing of art they don't take they're they're not they're um, probably amazing and they look beautiful but they can't take the beating that like modern day canoe materials can right well and i felt bad that i was always damaging my canoes and it'd be a lot of work and i'd be like oh man so i was like i have to buy a canoe and i had no money i was 25 so i would literally go in that time on kijiji second hand right yeah and be like oh man my budget's like four hundred dollars five hundred dollars yeah maybe eight hundred dollars if i really scrounge up yeah and you can't buy like a top of the line canoe you'd buy buying something third hand or fourth hand that's been right. banged up and repaired yeah. I remember I got a, a fiberglass canoe probably from the early 70s for free. Mm-hmm. It was at someone's cottage in the Muskokas. They were mm-hmm. throwing it out because it had been repaired so many times. It was like threadbare and they had it 
stored mm. outside in the winter just on the ground right. and it was yeah. buried. And they're like, I just want to get rid of this piece yeah. of junk. Yeah. You can have it. It's yeah. got so many holes in it. So I repaired the whole thing with like yeah. fresh fiberglass, built new gunnels, new yeah. seats. And I took it out on one journey to James Bay and it was like completely punctured beyond repair. <laughs> I ended up giving it away but you made myself. It. Yeah. 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 And I did that for years. It yeah. wasn't until 2015 yeah. that I finally had Novacraft Canoe. Who I know yeah. is you're also an ambassador for Novacraft right. Canoe, yeah. right? Yeah. Where I finally had Novacraft Canoe give me a canoe. Yeah. And yeah. I still use that canoe now, right. you know, nine years later. Yeah. And it was a lot more durable. But the irony is sometimes I look back at my earlier adventures and I say, yeah. I sometimes think I had more fun yeah. with the shoestring gear right. where I didn't have top of the line stuff. Yeah. And it was sort of Huckleberry Finn, my side of the mountain. Yeah. You know, you just make the best of it with what you've got homemade. Yeah. And uh, I mean, certainly traveling light is a piece fun, of wood right? with, a, with a string on the end for fishing. I was never that yeah. desperate. <laughs> I still had a Canadian tire rod. Right. Might yeah. have been the cheapest one, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I know uh, I never had to get to like hobo yeah. fishing. So, so I, essentially what you're saying too is that you don't have to have uh, top of the line gear to get out there and enjoy the outdoors and even do some pretty advanced level excursions and, and trips well probably not yeah. i mean i don't want anyone to misinterpret what i'm saying i don't right. really have a philosophy right my philosophy yeah. is whatever works for you do it right if you yeah. want the best of the line gear and you're yeah. able to buy it by all means get yeah. it i'm not one of those people who's going to criticize you i think yeah if you have that in your toolkit mm. more power to you but if you're also like you know 18 year olds watching this and it's like i can't afford any of this stuff i don't right. think that should hold you back necessarily Thousands yeah. of people for countless generations have done these kind of adventures without all this stuff. So there's yeah. no reason why you can't too. Totally. Of course, you have to yeah. be smart. We don't want people to do anything yeah. reckless or dangerous. I mean, you have to study and do your homework, make sure you know what mm -hmm. to do mm -hmm. in those scenarios. But yeah, really, right. Don't don't head out there and do something crazy with inadequate gear. You got to be careful what what you say to people because it is important to know what you're doing. But I, you know, I just I don't want people to feel like they need to be they can't go and do something at some level unless they blow thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah, it's like anything. You know? I mean, you use the example yeah. of cycling, right? Mm -hmm. Um if you go into a bike shop, it's mm -hmm. astonishing how expensive like a new mm -hmm. top of the line bike is, right? Yeah. But if you all you have is like some cheap bike from Canadian Tire or Walmart, there's mm -hmm. no reason why you should be prevented from going right. out and enjoying that, right? Yeah, you might not lap Lance Armstrong, but you're going to get to point A to point B. You could still ride from Vancouver to right. Halifax on that bike if that's what you want to do, right? Yeah. People have done it, and yeah. there's no reason why you can't do it. Yeah. Uh, if you're motivated, yeah. I mean, the sky is the limit, essentially, Love it. right? Love it. So, Adam, how did you, I, I guess... I'm interested to know a little bit more and some of this, this I read in your book, but how did you a get into this uh, wilderness travel, find a passion and say, I really want to take this to the next level. And I want to go alone to some of the most remote places in the world. And uh, it's a kind of a two tiered question is at what point did you realize I have to do this? Like what was going through your mind when you said, this is something that I'm so passionate about. I'm going to take on the enormous task of authoring these books and sticking with it, not just one book, but another book and another book, more trips and essentially making your livelihood out of it. And, you know, how do those kind of two things sort of tie together? Well, my fascination with wilderness, I think, stemmed mm -hmm. from like the earliest age, probably when yeah. I was like five or six years old. I think it, it's probably a universal thing. Mm -hmm. You can find it in cultures all over the world on all continents. Uh, yes. People are attracted to the wild. I mean, that's our DNA. 99.9% mm -hmm. .9 of our evolutionary history, we lived outside as hunter-gatherers. Uh, Until recently. Very recently, yeah. right? In the grand mm -hmm. scheme of things. So probably there's some sort of innate 
mm-hmm. uh, latent tendency in everyone. But for me, mm-hmm. where it came from, to be more specific, I grew up in rural southern Ontario, mm-hmm. which I think was a fabulous place to grow up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Again, I, mm-hmm. I count myself lucky that I grew up in yeah. the countryside of rural southern Ontario. So mm-hmm. where I grew up, you know, we had a quiet country road. There were no street lights. There were no sidewalks. We still chop wood to heat our house. Nice. Um, all these sorts of things. And mm-hmm. around my house was nothing but swamp forest. Mm-hmm. So for my brother and I and our dog, that was our playground every day, right? Mm-hmm. That's the playground was just in the woods. We didn't, we weren't like, we didn't have a swing set or anything. Mm-hmm. We just went into the forest right. and we would build what we called as kids forts. Right. I don't know why we well, call them forts. Bushcraft but. shelters, they're called now. Oh, is that what they are? Yeah, survival shelters. Well, we would just build forts. That's how you get away with doing them when you're growing up. Oh, okay, right, yeah. Right. So as a five-year-old, that fort was to protect mm-hmm. us from, like, monsters right. and axe murderers and Freddy mm-hmm. Krueger and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. And we'd have, like, Swiss yeah. Army knives and we'd make spears with sticks. Right, cool. And yeah. I remember, like, on a very young age, like mm-hmm. the age of seven or so, mm-hmm. um, being fascinated by this idea with my brother and our dog of how deep... We could go into the forest, the farthest we could get from our house. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we'd be out there for hours and my mom didn't like that. And she would like honk the horn <laughs> on our, our van to tell us like it was time These to come back. These kids are too feral. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah. I was fascinated by the idea of how deep can we go into the forest? And yeah. when you're five, like 30 meters into the woods feels like you're in the middle right. of the Alaskan wilderness. Totally. And like yeah. you could get eaten by a Kodiak bear at any right. second. Right. right. Um, so it's amazing the effect that has on your imagination. But for us, I think it was about, you know, not even a kilometer. You could go into the woods and then you Mm -hmm. come to another country road. So the deepest spot in the wilderness behind our house was in the middle where Mm -hmm. you're like 500 yards, 500 meters, maybe Mm -hmm. from the nearest road. Right. And I became fascinated with that spot. Mm-hmm. as a little kid because like that was the deepest wild spot mm-hmm. and if you had a map you could measure the distance mm-hmm. in straight lines to our house and all of the neighbor's house like oh there's the comforts farm right you know here's the yeah. here's this house the smith's yeah. house over there and we're like 600 meters from there 700 meters from here that's the most wild spot we can mm-hmm. get to so that's where we'll have our campfire that's I'm we'll impressed with the, the amount of like figuring you did at such a young age. I was always fascinated yeah. by maps and like yeah. figures, right? I used yeah. to draw maps, doodle on my placemat as a kid with like my frosted flakes, draw mm-hmm. these maps of Canada or just the woods around my house. Nice. And then that fascination, I mean, it held me over as a seven-year-old. But as I got a little bit older, I was fascinated by that same idea. So we would do canoe trips on mm-hmm. weekends, my dad, my brother, and I. Mm-hmm. And if we had like three days my entire philosophy mantra would be like, well, let's try to get as deep in from the parking lot as we possibly can. Right. Even if it's 20 kilometers, 25 kilometers, 30 kilometers, how deep are we actually getting into the backcountry, into the wild, into the wilderness? Mm-hmm. And, you know, my brother would usually be like, well, let's just go somewhere where we can catch good fish. Like mm-hmm. he loved fishing. Right. But yeah. I, for some reason, was fascinated by this idea of getting as far in from right. the parking lot, from the road as we could. Uh-huh. In a weekend, you can't get that far. Like yeah. 25, 30 kilometers would be it. Then yeah. you're probably going to start coming into some other area yeah. of cottages or road. Yeah. And that that fascination never left me in high school. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I was lucky grade eight. For some reason, Mr. Bianchini had us read Farley Mowat, Lost nice. in the Barrens. Nice. And I was like, oh, read man. Read one as a kid, too. Exactly. It's like, yeah. now this is not... Ontario, this is like northern Manitoba. Yeah. I've been doing the calculation in my head as a 13-year-old. I'm like, there are hundreds of kilometers right. from the nearest road. Yes. Um, so as a teenager, mm. now that I'm in like the 11th grade, 12th grade, I started thinking like, well, how, how can I get farther? So with my best friend, Wes, we would do road trips north of mm. Lake Superior. 
uh, you know, the road that goes up to Pickle Lake. Yes. He's like, this is as far as we can get. This is the end of the line in yeah. Ontario. This is the most northern yeah. road you can drive. And then we, we'd set off from there. Mm-hmm. That's what I did mm-hmm. after high school. And this fascination mm-hmm. with like, you know, the most remote spot or getting the farthest mm-hmm. you can from the parking lot, um, mm-hmm. it carried on mm-hmm. into journeys that took me farther and farther afield. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how it started as a mm-hmm. kid. And then as far as the books, um, I was always kind of bookish. Like mm. maybe not when I was really young, I was too rambunctious and wild. But mm. by my later years in high school, I was really into reading mm-hmm. and I would just consume literature. Anything I could lay my hands right. on could right. be a history book like Pierre Burton, could be a wilderness mm. story like Farley Mowat. But I'd also mm. read like, here's a horror story about zombies in Texas. And I'm going to read that too, because they had it in the school library. So mm-hmm. I would just read everything I could yeah. put my hands on. And when I went to university, I remember I didn't, I like didn't socialize at all. All I would do is read books. I was like, always my head was in books. I would go into the library and just randomly pull books off the shelf. Yeah. Like, oh, a book on Egyptian mummies. This looks interesting. Oh, a book on the fur trade in New France. I'm going to read this. And uh, maybe a Sherlock Holmes detective story. I'll put that in there. So I liked reading a lot. Right. And when you like reading, I guess writing sort of flows naturally from that. Right. So I already kind of recounted a little bit how when I was in my later 20s, a literary agent actually came to me and said, I'd read some of your shorter articles Mm -hmm. when you write about Mm -hmm. animals and things. Would you want to write a book? And I said, well, I can't say no if you're asking. Mm -hmm. Um, So I started writing that book. Yeah. uh, Which became Alone Against the North. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it did it. After you wrote that and you looked at that book, did you did you look at it and say, like, this is what I want to do? Like, this is what I want to keep doing. Like, how did you feel when you had that first book in your hand documenting this amazing journey that had inspired so many people? Well, well, I knew like I knew I wanted to write books even when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. I remember mm-hmm. in my high school yearbook where you put mm-hmm. like where you're going to be in 10 years. Mm-hmm. It's like playing in the NHL or, right. or doing Which this. Which you're also a hockey player. <laughs> I like hockey. That's how yes. you got a lot of your exercise, your training, I noticed, up in Sudbury. Yeah. Uh, as soon as for, I came in your place, I was like, yeah. oh, Jim plays hockey. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I saw right away the skates. Yeah. I love like hockey. Spirits. Yeah. 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 Well, we're Canadians, right? It's, it's hard like, to avoid. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much born with them on. I yeah. had a dream last yeah. night that I was on a hockey playing hockey again. I'm like, if I'm having dreams, it's been too long since I was on the rink. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was just on the pond the other day with my son. My son Thomas is three. We have a little Uh pond in the woods behind our house, so we go down on it. Yeah, and nice. he's still a little young to play, but we have right. high banks. And I'm like, this is yeah. going to be perfect. I don't have to chase the pucks when I'm teaching right. you how to play hockey. Yeah. Uh, but no, I mean, I put in my yearbook yeah. uh, for the 12th grade that in 10 years, I'd be the author of at least one book. Mm-hmm. So I knew I wanted to write books even in high school. So but you wrote it down. Yeah, so I did. you wrote it down and it ended up happening. You know, you hear people say that. You hear people say, you know, write down what your goals are. Write down you want to be. But this is an example of you doing this and it actually working. Ooh, I, again, I was lucky. I say I had mm-hmm. a head start because yeah. I already figured out what I wanted to do when I was 13 years old. Most people mm-hmm. now, you know, you have to spend like half your 20s or even into your 30s before you really figure out what you want to do with your life. What I do didn't even exist. I want to be a YouTube filmmaker. <laughs> like it didn't even, what would I have even gone to school for to be that? Really, That's true. Right? But I mean, if you're into the outdoors, yeah. you have a head start. But I knew mm-hmm. I wanted to make my career from the wilderness. Yeah. When I got to the 10th grade, you're like 15 and they make you do career studies. 
Mm-hmm. I told my teacher, I was like, uh, Miss Chudik, I just want to live in the wilderness. And she said, that's not a career, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> you have to pick something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I uh, I was like, the, the, the assignment for the class was you had to interview yeah. a professional and do your report on it. So right. I was like, well, I want a job that's in the wilderness. So I actually interviewed a park ranger. Because I was like, I want something that pays you to live in the forest. Mm-hmm. Um, so I interviewed a, a Minister of Natural Resources employee. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, like, maybe I'll do that. And I just thought writing was like a passion on the side. I never mm-hmm. really thought you'd be able to earn a living from writing books. Mm-hmm. But I liked books enough that I would always want to write them. Right. Even if nobody read them, that wouldn't yeah. really change the playing field for me. I would yeah. just write them as passion projects. Uh-huh. The fact that people, some people anyways, read my books mm-hmm. um, is, you know, I can't mm-hmm. I can't uh, be more grateful than, mm-hmm. than that, right? They're, they're available on audio as well, too, which is great, which is a great way to consume stuff when you're when you drive around I, you don't get the same experience because it's easier to miss stuff i find when you're listening to audiobooks than when you're actually like i'm the kind of reader i'm a, i'm not a fast reader but i'm the kind of reader i don't flip the page until i know exactly what was going on there yeah you i read slow I mean? as well despite yeah. the fact that i yeah. read a lot i like to read slow i really mm. like to savor each page and sort mm. of like uh, think oh what was the writer doing here in mm. this paragraph and sometimes i'll reread a paragraph twice or even right. three times to really absorb it right. Um, but audiobooks are great. I yeah. mean, they're very convenient if you're driving to work yes. or you're yeah. doing work around the house. It's good. And mm. they have advantages Just as trying well. Just trying to cancel out your children screaming. Exactly. You know? I think in Alone Against the North, I put a lot of humor <laughs> into that book. Yeah. Like irony and sarcasm, which mm-hmm. sometimes didn't always come across on the printed page. Mm-hmm. So people didn't really get what I was going for. But mm-hmm. if you listen to the audiobook, it's like when you can pick up. It. Yeah, you can pick up. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, he's being tongue in cheek. Mm-hmm. This is supposed to be mm-hmm. funny yeah. what he's describing. Amazing. Um, so yeah, that there are advantages to the, the audio book as well. Yeah. And so you essentially, you knew what you knew you wanted to do something with the wilderness that had to do with the wilderness. You knew that you loved writing and then so it slowly kind of became more or less your livelihood. Yes. Um, going into that. Yeah. Wow. That's that's pretty awesome. Man. Well, I think yeah. in my twenties I would mm-hmm. write all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Like I was I was writing so much in mm-hmm. my twenties. Academic articles on mm-hmm. history, uh, newspaper columns on nature and environmental issues. Mm-hmm. I'd write you know just fictional stories set in the seventeen hundreds or right. medieval times for fun. Right. But I didn't know if any of those would ever be published. I think I would mm-hmm. send things to publishers, like make a mm-hmm. query, and you'd always get rejection letters, rejection mm-hmm. letters, and mm-hmm. I thought you know. One day it'll work out. I don't know exactly how, mm-hmm. but I was lucky where I just focused more on my adventures, doing my expeditions. Mm-hmm. I was doing things for the Royal Canadian Geographical Society yeah. and the pieces yeah. of the puzzles just sort of came mm-hmm. together. And that was my mindset, which was mm-hmm. like, never give up. When mm-hmm. in doubt, just keep going, keep pushing on. Mm-hmm. Something will turn up. And that's the right. same mindset I have on a 3,400 kilometer wilderness journey, right? It's mm-hmm. getting dark. I don't know where to camp. Should I just stop here and sleep on this rock? Mm-hmm. It's not going to be very pleasant. Or right. should I push on? I'm like, you know what? Yeah. I'm just going to push on. Something will turn up. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's kind of my mindset in life as well yeah. as in the wilderness on a journey. It's funny how those two things are, are definitely similar. You know what I mean? Don't give up. Keep going bit by bit. Don't get discouraged. Exact same sort of thing to finish a massive wilderness expedition as to become an author. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah right. I don't know if you do this, but when I'm in the wilderness mm-hmm. on a solo journey. Yeah. I mean, it's it's ironic. It sounds like a paradox, but to mm-hmm. be an optimist mm-hmm. before I go to bed or when I wake up in the morning, I always think, what's the worst case scenario? Right. So when I wake up in the morning, I'm like, okay, a bear definitely ate all my food in mm-hmm. the night. 
my canoe probably <laughs> my canoe probably blew away blew in that away. storm, <laughs> right, uh, right? Which can happen, as you know. Once in eighteen years, it happened to me. Yeah. And uh, it's going to be like gale force, seventy mm. kilometer an hour wind gusts. Mm-hmm. Temperatures will be hovering around freezing, heavy mm-hmm. rain, nowhere to camp. Mm-hmm. But by the law of averages, the balance of probability is a right. bear didn't eat your stuff. Right. So when you unzip the door and look out and your food barrel's still there, it's like, this yeah. day is starting off on a high. <laughs> Everything is going my way, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's like, maybe the weather's not that great, yeah. but I have my food here. Yeah. And how can you complain when you just yeah. had this lovely granola bar for yeah. breakfast? Right. Um, Which you like, love, the granola bars. You find them very relaxing. Well, it's the same sort of thing, yeah. right? After a month, everything starts to taste good. It's amazing. So it's like, yeah. yeah, man, I'm craving that yeah. freeze-dried meal. Cool. Um, yeah. So I always try to find find ways to look on the bright side yeah. because I think a lot of people when they do sort of like a daunting journey yeah. um, it's not the physical side that defeats them it's the mental side where they take mm-hmm. themselves out of the game before it's even began because they mm-hmm. end up worrying mm-hmm. about too many things and I just sort of break it down and say mm-hmm. what do I have to be grateful about for this day mm-hmm. and it's like well the wind is awful just mm-hmm. gale force winds mm-hmm. this is going to be like snail's pace all day mm-hmm. just inching into these headwinds mm-hmm. but there's no bugs right the wind is so strong there's no mosquitoes yeah. and black flies i don't have to wear a mesh bug net mm-hmm. it's so liberating now just to have my mm-hmm. head free mm-hmm. to breathe in that air mm-hmm. and then like the next day it's dead calm there's mm-hmm. no wind whatsoever the black flies are atrocious Horrific. you're getting eaten yeah. alive it's like i just donated mm-hmm. you know a liter of blood right. for those black flies and mosquitoes yeah. but it's yeah. dead calm, yeah. and I'm just canoeing along, making five, six kilometer an hour progress now. That's amazing. And the bugs are making you paddle faster. Yeah, so it's like there's yeah. so many, every drawback kind of has a positive as well. Mm-hmm. And I would always look on those scenarios. Like it's mm-hmm. just constant, it's been two weeks straight of rain. Mm-hmm. This is awful. I'm soaking wet. You know, my feet are mm-hmm. looking bad. But on the bright side, there's no danger of forest fires right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. This heavy rain system for the last two weeks has soaked mm-hmm. the forest mm-hmm. and eliminated forest fire hazards, which is definitely mm-hmm. a positive um, in this scenario. So yeah. any of those scenarios, I always try to find some sort of upside, right? Yeah. Like, uh, now um, yeah. it's going to be slow going. I got a portage, but it's going to keep yeah. me warm so I don't have to worry about hypothermia. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I do all these sorts of scenarios, try to stay motivated, yeah. stay upbeat, stay optimistic. Absolutely. And you talk about that in your book and it's almost, almost kind of comical sometimes because things can seem so bad, but you're like, but you know, the, at least the, the wind is at my back, despite the fact that there's 10 foot rollers on the lake or, or something like that. And it's almost like you bring it up in kind of a way that's funny, but also is just very realistic because you can see how that keeps kind of motivating you and pushing you on and getting you to think positive. Like I can, uh, you know, I, I, uh, it's a little bit counter wisdom too, to wake up and be like, worst thing that happens, bear ate my tent. I look down, my legs been ripped off and all my food's gone or whatever and get out. And, and it's, it's almost like when you get out, you're sort of like actually thinking negatively, but then you get out there and nothing could be worse than a worst case scenario. Uh, but then how you're actually uh, focusing on the positive despite how bad things are. It's really interesting. And uh, of all places where you can talk about good weather, horrific bugs, bad weather, not good bugs. Like you can't win in Labrador, no. right? It's just like you're getting killed. On The nicer the day, the more just absolutely riddled you get with black fly bites. And the worse the day, you're freezing, but there's no bug. It's like you, you both things do not exist. And yeah, so, but you try to make the positive yeah. for the best out of whichever yeah. scenario you end up yeah. in right what do you prefer bad weather no bugs or good weather and bugs that's a tough one it's right it's actually yeah. the combination that works well right yeah. like yeah if it's cold i don't mind cold so i do a lot of journeys late in the year in yeah. september 
and then there's no bugs, which mm-hmm. is a, definitely a bonus. Mm-hmm. But if you have like really bad headwinds every single day, you're mm-hmm. not going to be doing very long journeys. No. No. Uh, you're yeah. just going to be covering like 10K a day or something like that. So you yeah. kind of need both, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's bad black flies or mosquitoes, you just sort of take make the best of it, whatever scenario you're in. Same with the portages. I'm sure you can relate to this. Mm-hmm. When you know you have some long, grueling portage coming up, it could be like four kilometers. I just tell myself ahead of time before I've even taken a look at it. It's going to be like impenetrable deadfall every which right. way, broken branches, right. yeah. tear my clothes to yeah. shreds, yeah. poke an eye out. Yeah. And then it's like, it's only a kilometer of yeah. impenetrable deadfall. After that, it kind of opens up and it's not so bad. Mm-hmm. So because you told yourself ahead of time, it's going to be four kilometers of deadfall and it only turns out to be one. Psychologically, mm-hmm. it feels like it's all downhill, like you're ahead of the game. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're coming into that portage and you're thinking it's going to be pretty open, you know, I'll probably yeah. get this done before lunch. And then you realize it's going to take two days to get through this. I mean, it's just such a crushing blow mm-hmm. mentally because you weren't expecting it. hundred percent. It can take yeah. you like right out of the game yeah. before you even began. Yeah. So I try to avoid those mental pitfalls right. by prepping myself psychologically yeah. like ahead of time. Right. Yeah. And you, that's come from experience. I imagine too. Absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. same in hockey to use a hockey yeah. example. Coaches try to tell their team, like yeah. don't get overconfidence. If you think you're just going to have a cakewalk and win this series in four games. Yeah. You know, this team's a lot better than you realize because sometimes, right. you know, that can be a pitfall as well. If you yeah. think it's going to be too easy, then you get then you're not playing good and you take the other team too lightly and you get your butt kicked. Yeah. So I always yeah. try to tell myself, you know, this set of rapids yeah. is going to be really bad and, you know, yeah. get in the zone now or we're going to have yeah. to portage here. Right. Yeah. To prepare for it. And then Absolutely. it turns out, no, oh, these rapids aren't that bad. Yeah. We don't actually have to portage. It's like, wow, we just yeah. won the lottery right. instead of spending the next six hours grueling through that portage. Yeah. We're just going to get through this in 10 minutes down through this set of rapids, right? So I do that kind of stuff as well. Yeah, it is a great feeling whenever Mm. that happens on a journey. Totally. And I think what people kind of don't realize is that it's so much more than a number of miles or kilometers, right? Like everybody wants to hear how many miles did you travel? And especially when it comes to portaging, you could have a portage that's, you know, four or five kilometers long and... Or you could have one that's three kilometers, two kilometers long. That's way harder. You look at some of these long portages in Algonquin Park. They're maintained. They're used all the time. They're like highways. Feels like a piece of cake. But then you get into somewhere like Labrador where there's no portage trails, where you're in mountainous, rugged country. And you're like hauling your canoe through the bush and, uh, you know, trying to go through impenetrable alder bushes. I remember one portage we were doing in, in Labrador and we had to stand our canoe up straight on its end, a 17 foot canoe and like twist it through these, like this cliff and these trees. And it's like even hard to explain. Right? Oh, I know that exact feeling yeah. where you're like base. I always yeah. think of it like a game of twister Yeah, where you're yeah. flipping a canoe on its side, trying to edge between black spruce then turn it this way, yeah. go back to the bow, yeah. bend it that way. Now go to the stern, yeah. angle it this way. Like the forest yeah. can be so thick, but I think that is the, yeah. that is the crucial fact that some people who maybe haven't done, you know, deep wilderness, mm-hmm. the absence of trails is yeah. really like night and day. Yes. If you're traveling on an established trail, everything yeah. is just so much easier. I mean, mentally, you can just kind of zone out because you're just yeah. putting one foot in front of the other. Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry about getting lost and you don't have to worry about poking your eye out or yeah. tripping over this dead Crevices. Yeah. With like a little moss over them. Like in Labrador, sometimes I think you ran into some of those things where you step in the wrong spot. It's like a, a leg breaker. Your leg just goes down into a cavern. There's stuff. a lot of those in Nineveh yeah. and the Northwest Territories as well. Like on yeah. the Arctic tundra, yeah. there are some areas where it's just desolate rock as far as mm-hmm. the eye can see, wow. riddled 
with boulders and it's mm -hmm. like perfect for either slipping and smashing your head off a rock mm -hmm. or twisting an ankle and you have to portage across this boulder mm -hmm. field just this chaotic jumble mm -hmm. of rocks every which way and i mean half the time i'd be weaving between them other times i'd be trying to balance on top of them and that can go on for miles i think uh, yeah that, that is probably the biggest factor mm -hmm. the lack of trails that makes mm. things so much more difficult. That's yeah. what I tell myself when I was portaging around Niagara Falls. Yeah. I was like, well, it's 13 kilometers to get around Niagara Falls, mm. the Whirlpool Rapids, mm -hmm. the gorge, before I can put back in below mm. the Queenston Lewiston Bridge. Yeah. But I'm like, there's a paved trail the whole way. Portage <laughs> Avenue. It's paved trail. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. easy. Yeah, it just goes to show how how things progress over time. At yeah. one time was a portage trail and now it's a road that goes past casinos. Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. still called the portage road right. at one point, but uh, mm -hmm. yeah, no, that definitely makes it so much easier if you have a trail to follow mm -hmm. in any sort of environment. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. Do you ever get other historians that call you and something that you kind of discovered that you thought was interesting, they can link it to a bigger story? Well, I collaborate with different archaeologists mm -hmm. and historians all the time. I was having a fascinating conversation mm -hmm. last week uh, with an archaeologist working on mm -hmm. Baffin Island in the yeah. Arctic, planning to go there this summer. Yeah. I can't say all, all the things she just found up there, but um, no, I mean, like many, many fields of human endeavor, it's all mm -hmm. collaborative. You build off of the groundwork mm -hmm. someone laid before you. You stand on their shoulders. Um, this happens all the time in, yeah. in historical research. Mm -hmm. uh, you spend a lot of time just reading what other people have done, and then you say, okay, based off of uh, Wallace and the field work she did in the 70s, I'm going to use that as my starting point, pick up the breadcrumb trail she left, mm -hmm. and try to build off of that. So I think that definitely happens. I think probably that's happened yeah. with some of my books, like A History Canon and Ten Maps. Yeah. Uh, broke some new ground on different explorers and other people yeah. have now picked up that trail and carried it on. Yeah. And it's like that in many different, many different areas, right? Not just yeah. in history and archeology span yeah. uh, where you're building off of someone's work that came before you or collaborating right. or you read someone's work and it, it totally changed your perspective or, mm -hmm. you know, a new idea popped into your head. Mm -hmm. Ah, I didn't think of this. Yeah. What a good insight. Right. Right. So yeah. that's, that's part of the fun of it as well. Yeah. I imagine you found some, uh, cause in the Arctic, there's all kinds of, you know, on undocumented kind of historical sites that some of them, you know, might not even be that old really, but, uh, Inuit tent rings and, uh, you know, stone Fox traps and, uh, all kinds of stuff, old uh, meat caches and things like that. I found a ton of those things too, but, uh, I think, um, which I'm sure you've probably seen a few of that uh, kind of thing. Uh, they're usually closer to the coast. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Very, yeah. yeah. Inuit culture historically, mm -hmm. even, even today was very maritime, right? Yeah. Coastal oriented. Yeah. Uh, main Except food for the staples. Kazan, maybe. Yeah, yeah, a little bit yeah. there. That's the only inland right. community even right. now, right? Yeah. Everywhere else is based around seals, yeah. fish, yeah. and whales. Mm -hmm. um, coastal villages, coastal mm -hmm. settlements. But I mean, yeah, you think of think of France mm -hmm. or Germany. Yeah. Um, archaeologists are still making new discoveries there all the right. time in 2024. Yeah. Well, France and Germany could fit into like a little corner of Ontario. Right. I mean, think of how vast Canada is. Yeah. I mean, Newfoundland is closer mm -hmm. to Ireland. Mm -hmm. than it is to British Columbia. Right. The Atlantic right. Yeah, that's, Ocean. That's, I never even thought about that, but absolutely. Yeah, yeah. if you're in Eastern Canada, mm -hmm. you're closer to Spain and mm -hmm. Ireland than you are to Western Canada. Mm -hmm. I mean, so it's just so vast. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you know, when you go out there, I mean, it really impresses on you uh, how vast mm -hmm. that landscape is. And you could be looking for a needle in a haystack, but mm -hmm. in this case, it's like looking for a needle mm -hmm. in uh, an entire farmstead right it could mm -hmm. be anywhere out there so mm -hmm. little things will come to light 
even centuries from now. Yeah. Uh, there's so many expeditions from the past. Lost Explorer vanished. I'm doing a project right now about a Lost yeah. Explorer who oh, vanished yeah. in 1910. Okay, so half yeah. the time I'm in the archives looking through old letters, right. going down uh, rabbit holes in archives mm-hmm. saying, oh, I think this guy might have been in the area. He wrote letters in 1907, mm-hmm. could shed light on this. And then going back out into the wilderness and trying to retrace a route, mm-hmm. thinking, I think this is where this trapper was mm-hmm. in 1908. There could be a cabin here. Sounds like a book. Yeah, that could be a book a couple of years yeah. from now. This yeah. is a lost explorer I've been researching off and on since 2011. Yeah. So it's taken a long time to pick up all those breadcrumb trails and put the threads together and sort of tell his story. I want to write a book about him and his disappearance. Interesting. What area? Uh, This is Northwest Territories, Mm -hmm. Western Arctic, not far from the Beaufort Sea. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. My brother and I found a stone cairn that was uh, likely built by Collinson and McClure. Um, We think when uh, uh, Captain Robert McClure made first contact with a group of Copper Inuit, on Western Victoria Island in his journals. Cause that's right where this Cairn was. And, um, we don't know what's in it, but McClure writes how he gave this Inuit girl a pen and paper. And she drew what at the time was the best map of the Arctic coast known to the British empire. And also drew Victoria Island, which at that time they called Victoria land. Yeah. And so that was the first time they knew that Victoria Island was in fact an island. Now there's no mention of building a stone cairn there, but what an interesting thing to leave in a little, a little, uh, uh, um, metal jar or whatever they're called and put it in the cairn, but he didn't mention the cairn. So we documented this with the Canadian museum of history. It's called site OFPT 10. And, uh, they had somehow bypassed it. They're up in the area looking for everything as part of the search for Franklin, but somehow they didn't see it. And my brother and I just stumbled a- a- across it because we were likely traveling by similar means. Now they, they, they actually walked along the uh, the coast um, hauling sledges, right? We were paddling. But um, it's funny because the probably a natural place to uh, stop, whether it's soft water or hard water, would be in that spot and, and likely where other Inuit people would be encamped, where they would stop to meet them would be in a spot like that. So I just find it interesting that oftentimes traveling the way that we do, which is the same way that people did travel. You happen to come across these things and whether or not you even realize it, you're kind of in the footsteps of people who once passed that way before in the footsteps of history. And it's just such a fascinating feeling. Oh, um, absolutely. Don't you think? Oh, I yeah. know. I mean, there's hundreds of Karens yeah. like that out scattered yeah. across the Arctic yeah. archipelago and yeah. all over North America. Mm-hmm. There are sites like that that mm-hmm. you think like, oh, they must have been documented right. back in 1993. But it's yeah. like, no, it's so easy to miss. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like petroglyphs and things that you could walk by a thousand times and never see it unless right. the sun was hitting it just right. Right. Um, you wouldn't yeah. notice it well, was Well, because they're there. like 3,000 years old, some of the some pictographs. Are, and, yeah, and very that. heavily faded. Yeah. If, if the light isn't just right, you're not going to see it there. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, those kind of those kind of uh, finds are always extremely mm-hmm. exciting. And mm-hmm. there's many of them that are still just waiting to be found yeah. out there. All yeah. kinds of mysterious Karens in the high Arctic. Yeah, it's just part of the whole kind of adventure. Have you ever have you ever done uh, much tripping in uh, Tomogamy region at all? Oh, yeah, quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, I used to do guided hikes in Tomogamy. Oh, okay. On foot, teaching yeah. people how to identify wild mushrooms. Oh, neat. Yeah, yeah but Tomogamy is one of the most beautiful areas in Ontario, mm-hmm. for sure. I should uh, I should ask you about this. Um, Actually, it, it kind of 
is similar to what we're talking about before on, you know, you creating a book or some content and then some other historian or other person seeing what you've done and then relating it to something they did. But it was, uh, we were there with, um, indigenous elder Alex Matthias who lives on Obabaka Lake. And he was showing us some of these old pictographs and he said, you know, uh, um, I don't know how old they are. You know, my dad told me they weren't from our people, but I think about 3,500 years old or something like that. And, uh, you know, made in red ochre, a guy called me from the Kirk Whipper canoe center. And he, he had been studying the, uh, the, the, the travels of, uh, of the, uh, Iroquois that were killed at Iroquois falls. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, they were apparently guided by the Dokis Ojibwe. And so he was, he thinks that there's a good chance those pictographs were made by those Iroquois that were being guided by the Dokis Ojibwe that ended up being killed at Iroquois Falls, which uh, to me sounds super cool, whether it's true or not, I have no idea, but he was like ecstatic because he saw this video we shot with Alex on these things. I don't know if you could, if you have any idea whether something like that would be possible. Well, it's very hard to date pictographs. Um, I did more research on petroglyphs when I was studying for my PhD. Pictographs yeah. Our, our paintings on the yes. rock. We don't yeah. have very many petroglyphs in Ontario, which yeah. is an actual rock carving. Right. Uh, there's yeah. only one really famous petroglyph site, Petro- Petroglyph Provincial Park. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Western Canada, there's yeah. thousands of petroglyphs, which yeah. are rock carvings. And there were many different methods to try to figure out how to date them. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of which was actually excavating at the base of the stone, yeah. digging down through the layers of soil, mm-hmm and finding the actual shavings from the rock that had been chiseled out maybe oh, a thousand years okay. ago, yeah. and then hopefully finding something organic that you could date like carbon and then carbon mm-hmm. dating the shavings. Uh, an archaeologist tried to experiment with that technique. Other times, petroglyphs will come to light where they're, they've been buried underground for like 2,000 years or more, mm-hmm. and you have like a storm, and it uproots a tree, and oh, it yeah. brings up all this earth. And it's mm-hmm. like this thing was three feet underground or more, and it was hidden there. But mm-hmm. if you go back in time 3,000 years ago, this might have been exposed here or water levels were different. Yeah. Other petroglyphs are underwater along the coast, and yeah. it's like the, the, the water levels have changed. Uh-huh. And 900 years ago, that was 10 feet up mm-hmm. the shore. Now it's under the water. But, yeah, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to, to date those things or, or prove mm-hmm. it. But, I mean— Because it's just rock. How do, you, how do you date it and know when it was Yeah, it's very, very made. difficult to yeah. do. But, um, yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. People mm-hmm. study, I mean, pictographs and petroglyphs, they mm-hmm. come to light all over the world, all over the Northern mm-hmm. Hemisphere. Yeah. Um, so many similarities between oh, that's, them, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Many, many people, researchers have been attracted mm-hmm. to that. Like, why are these petroglyphs on, say, the mm-hmm. coast of British Columbia mm-hmm. so, so similar to the ones that you see in Southeast Asia? Or how come these mm-hmm. ones in the Arctic look so similar mm-hmm. to the ones in Scandinavia? Mm-hmm. Um, is it just different cultures all over the world have certain cultural archetypes? Mm-hmm. Um, same stories, same patterns seem to come up in myths all mm-hmm. over the world. Does it reflect something deep in the human psyche? Mm-hmm. Or are they possible indications of, of ancient journeys and ancient connections? Yeah, yeah. Uh, People have explored your, that let theory. Let your mind run wire, wild, right? Exactly. Yeah. So anytime you can yeah. connect a story, whether it's the story of Iroquois Falls yeah. with particular pictographs and tomogamy i mean it's fascinating Mm -hmm. Uh, i can't speak specifically on those ones Mm -hmm. i mean it'd be really cool if that turns out to be the case yeah yeah. um but sometimes i mean the story in itself is sometimes i mean it has a value in itself Mm -hmm. whether it's true or false Mm -hmm. um folklore and legends Mm -hmm. i mean they have a certain truth to them even Mm -hmm. if it didn't actually happen that way 
Uh, sometimes there's a there's a hidden truth within like the story of the well, every good story deserves embellishment. Is that another Gandalf quote? What the hell is with <laughs> me today? Jeez, jeez. But that's so that you and you have this background in archaeology in general as well, right? Was that part of? Did that spawn out of your your passion for nature and and travel like that? Do you find those things to be one of the same in some way or another? Oh, absolutely. I mean, my yeah. the kind of historical research that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. kind of goes hand in glove with what I do in wilderness mm-hmm. canoe journeys. So I'm interested in mm-hmm. uh, indigenous history, fur trade history, right. early explorers, historical yeah. geography, mm-hmm. um, in, in remote history, places out in the wilderness, in the mm-hmm. Arctic or the subarctic or the boreal forest. Um, so, yeah, to me, it's all interconnected. Mm-hmm. and uh, they complement each other fairly well. Mm-hmm. I like, in all of my books, this is something I try to do, Where the Falcon Flies Beyond the Trees, uh, weaving the history of the places I'm traveling through yeah. into my story. So mm-hmm. it's not just the story of my canoe journey in 2022. If I come across the ruins of a cabin or an old gravesite or mm-hmm. a waterfall with a particular story from 200 years ago connected with it, I try to like weave that into the story of my book. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you said... Like you, the you, Douglas's cabin, for example, on Great Bear. Yes, yeah. I believe. Or was that Great Bear? Yeah, you also just passed... Just up from Great Bear, yeah. Great, right. And you also passed uh, John Hornby's... Uh, where John Hornby's cabin was, where he died. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there, I mean, there are places like that all through my northern books. But mm-hmm. even, as you said earlier on in the podcast on Lake Erie, mm-hmm. I tried to have the same approach. I'm like, if I'm right. traveling through Toronto, yeah, you know, there are little hidden gems of history that mm-hmm. go back deep in Toronto. Here's the Toronto Islands. This mm-hmm. is the reason for the city's existence. Davenport Road. Exactly. Yeah. All these kind of things. Here's yeah. an old cemetery or here's yeah. an old lighthouse. I'm going to have to stop my canoe journey and and get on this island on the St. Lawrence and find out what this lighthouse is. Well, oh, it dates back 200 years. Or this is an old flour mill, 400 years old, oldest Mm -hmm. flour mill in Canada. Um, Anything that I saw on my journey, I kind of wanted to Mm -hmm. um, describe in my book Mm -hmm. with sort of the idea that if you were to redo this journey, uh, this is sort of like a traveler's log of what you would see off the coast of Burlington or Oakville or uh, Trois Rivieres Mm -hmm. as you did the journey. You know, look out for this little spot. Stop yeah. here because there's oh, a manor absolutely. in the woods. Absolutely. If you stop at this creek and you go up it, you can yeah. glimpse this old French manor from the yeah. early 1700s. What amazing spot. like scavenger hunt that would even be for students or something like that, eh? To, to where you could build a whole curriculum off of that. Almost. Well, you you could, yeah. and I think you could do that anywhere mm-hmm. um, in the world, right? Anywhere mm-hmm. you go out looking, you're going to find all kinds of interesting things. Mm-hmm. I was jealous at first because I when I first uh, when you first came onto my radar when we were talking about on the Gan River when you discovered the waterfall and they're calling you the Indiana uh, Canadian Indiana Jones. And uh, it all just makes so much sense to me now because the adventure, the archaeology, you know, sure, you're not beating up Nazis, but I don't know. Maybe you are. You're just not talking about. No, I don't. uh, No, no, no no whip, no gun. I don't do anything like that. No, but I mean, it's just it's it's really cool because there there is I can just see, though, all those things tied together in in, between your canoe travel, between uh, the history and between uh, the passion for archaeology as well, um, how kind of those things just sort of come together as one sort of uh, overarching sort of passion for you, I think. Yeah, I mean, there was yeah. a point in my life where I thought yeah. I was going to end up in a university just as a professor. Right. When I was doing my PhD, 
but I still had this abiding mm-hmm. passion for the wilderness right. and for like more of an unconventional approach, mm-hmm. traveling through the wild. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, if I was a professor, you know, I'd, I'd have to teach mm-hmm. for the semester for eight months and then I could go in the wilderness for the summer. True. But I was like, ah, oh, man, True. I don't know if I could do it. And, you know, yeah. Grading term papers, I'd rather be out in the wild. And mm-hmm. so far I've been lucky enough that I've been able to earn my living just self-employed as an yeah. adventurer writing books. Yeah. And for as long as I'm able to keep doing this, I intend yeah. to just keep doing this route. But I, I would like to do more history books and I have plans right. to do more sort of pure history archaeology yeah. books in the years ahead yeah. uh, with maybe a little bit of venture tossed in just to spice things up but uh-huh. um, well the uh, the history of Canada in 10 maps it was that one is a pure history book that wasn't wasn't based around an expedition right yeah of my five books that's mm-hmm. the only one that's just a pure standalone history book yeah uh, that's not an adventure book but I wrote it as an yeah. adventure story it's just not my story I put you in right. the shoes or the moccasins of David Thompson and Alexander uh-huh. McKenzie in Sam Hearn, I tried to bring their stories to life. Yeah. Um, doing archival research, yeah. reading through their journals and their diaries and being like, oh man, I can't believe Alexander McKenzie yeah. wrote this on yeah. April 4th, 1789. I've got to yeah. give my readers a taste of this. So I'm going to transcribe this from his journal yeah. and put it in my book and describe the scene yeah. as they're going up to Peace River here. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's amazing. The ice is breaking up. They're going into these rocky mountains. They have yeah. no idea where they're going to end up. Right. I mean, it's just fascinating. That's David Thompson you're talking Alexander about? Alexander McKenzie in McKenzie. that case. But oh, David McKenzie, Thompson. Another, a ginger. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, Alexander McKenzie is one of my together. favorites. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, you, you have a, you like to, you're cool with the gingers. That's all right. That's yeah. All right. No, yeah. Alexander McKenzie is one of the all time mm. greats. Mm. Uh, but I have a chapter on David Thompson as well. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So. That's the one where McKenzie, he climbed up to the height of land and there just happened to be like a, a native dude sitting up there that pointed in, in his right direction to find the Fraser or something like that. Yeah. Right? That's later on. Yeah. Like they're in the yeah. interior in the mountains right. there. And it's getting to the point where McKenzie, has mm-hmm. to kind of decide, do we still keep going by birch bark canoe? Mm-hmm. Because every day in his diary, he's writing, we have to mm-hmm. repair these canoes and there's fewer mm-hmm. and fewer birch trees that are suitable for it. Right. He's like, the voyageurs are spending hours just hiking through the woods, trying to find a birch tree big mm-hmm. enough to make a patch for our canoe because yeah. the mountain rivers are getting just completely wild, choked yeah. with white water. Yeah. So he's like saying, you know, what do we do? Do we actually abandon our canoes? Which uh-huh. to these voyageurs is almost unthinkable. Right. These guys yeah. like... Canoes is the air they breathe. It's what they've done their whole life. So they're like almost like uh, they have like a phobia of almost abandoning their canoes. Mm -hmm. But when Mackenzie gets into the interior, they're getting closer to the coast. So it's getting more populated. They're coming across different indigenous nations Mm -hmm. who have trails. And one of them tells them, and of course, they don't understand the language. Uh, Mackenzie actually had quite a knack for languages. Uh, His first language was Gaelic. He grew Mm -hmm. up on the island of Lewis. So Gaelic Mm -hmm. was his first language. Mm -hmm. He doesn't learn English until later on. Mm -hmm. He actually is an orphan. He gets sent to the 13 colonies as a little 12-year-old boy, and he learns Mm -hmm. English there. And then um, he gets sent to Montreal, which at that time is like a village in the wilderness. Yeah. And he gets apprenticed to the fur trade as a kid. So he has to learn French Mm -hmm. to go work in this fur trade. So Mm -hmm. he's now trilingual, speaking Mm -hmm. Gaelic, English, and French. Wow. And as a teenager, he gets sent to the Northwest. Uh And with his facility for language, he ends up learning Athabascan, which Uh is the Dene language. Uh And he learns a couple of different Algonquian dialects as well, Uh spoken by the Cree and the Ojibwe. And in his journal, he's writing out, like, basically, you know, this word means... Mm -hmm. Uh, kettle this means Mm -hmm. axe you know trying Mm -hmm. to figure out this stuff but he still doesn't really understand the language up in the mountains Mm -hmm. but basically through sign language through pointing at stuff he realizes okay we can go this way yeah and we'll hit the ocean canoes are no longer any use to us here so he says we're abandoning the canoes guys we're going to travel on foot 
yeah. and his men are like, oh no, like we're abandoning the canoes. Yeah. And yeah. he's like, we have to, like we, yeah. we have to go this way. So they travel on foot yeah. um, the rest of the way until they get to the coast and they come across some of the Pacific Northwest indigenous people who don't have birch bark. Mm-hmm. They have actual dugout mm-hmm. canoes, mm-hmm. entirely different technology. Yeah, not the easiest to portage. No, right. and they'll, they'll actually go down to the salt water in one mm-hmm. of these dugout canoes. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mackenzie pays these guys a very high compliment. He says they're the most skilled paddlers he'd ever seen, even oh, wow. better than the French Canadian voyageurs, wow, wow. which is Did high praise indeed. Did he say that indeed. while the voyageurs were listening to him? Well, the voyageurs were illiterate, so they weren't going to read his, okay. ju- his journal. Right, um, right They yeah. couldn't like you know take a little peek at it around the campfire at night right. and be like, hey, <laughs> yeah. you hurt my feelings. Right, right. Uh, but yeah. that's what Mackenzie yeah. wrote. And of course, paddling on the ocean demands an entirely different skill set with tides. Uh-huh. And the tides on the, the West Coast can be very powerful mm-hmm. around some of those inlets and things mm-hmm. like that. And these are big canoes, not like the kind of canoes we paddle nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Some of these West Coast canoes could hold up to 100 warriors were they that big well they could be yeah absolutely more canoes you hear called a lot you know i'm me thinking maybe 30 people but 100 uh, oh yeah the massive ones i mean they you look at the distance they were paddling to some of the offshore islands yeah like Haida Gwaii. exactly that's a far way offshore i mean you wouldn't want a canoe there nowadays right islands at the edge of the earth exactly yeah yeah Yeah. exactly so i mean you think how do you even get out there right that's very remote big boat yeah, very yeah. big boat, and you want to know what you're doing. Yeah, uh, storm picks up. I mean, you're in a yeah. bad spot very quickly. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, this kind of history is all part of the story. It's fascinating. Yeah. I'd love to come back to it and revisit it, and mm-hmm. maybe write more books about it. Absolutely. Uh, in the I'm years looking ahead. Looking forward to more books. Is there, is there anything? If you're, let's say, you really want to become a writer, is there any advice you would give to, you know, maybe someone younger, maybe someone older? Uh, that wants to get into writing, what would you uh, what would you recommend they do to try to start? Well, the two most practical tips I could offer would be to read as as much as you can and as widely as you mm-hmm. can. I like to read the old classics myself, but yeah. I read as many different genres. I mean, you keep yeah. bringing up Lord of the Rings, so yeah, read- I, I've never even read one of the Lord of the <laughs> Ring books. But I-, <laughs> I actually read Lord of the Rings yeah. on my journey across the Arctic. I'd never read ah, them before. Yeah, yeah, I was in my thirties, and I was like, yeah. I got to see what the fuss is about. So yeah. I read. The trilogy on that journey. Yeah, I was late to the party, but I got into them, and I could mm-hmm. see if you like wilderness, you would like them. Well, it's in it's the- all about an expedition. The only thing is, you know, when we do our trips, we're not trying to throw the ring into the fires of Mordor. We no. don't have it nearly as good as a hook. No, you know, but in fantasy, you can make up anything. But yeah, they're doing canoe trips, they're hiking, they're trekking. It is an adventure. And wilderness. The, bo- the adventure. books actually have a lot more mm. of that wilderness camping, yes, uh, content mm. than the film oh, showed, okay. especially yeah. the second and the third one. Yeah. There's a lot more of just camping in the for us mm-hmm. um then made it into the film versions yeah. but yeah. uh yeah i would say my best advice would be to read as widely as possible mm-hmm. um because i think that that's a great way to sharpen your own skills your own writing yeah. and then when you write um read it over not once or twice proofread but read it a hundred times so you mm-hmm. almost know your own book off by heart mm-hmm. uh, because i will write my books fast but then i'll revise them mm-hmm. and you know just figuring out well what word do i really want here and be really meticulous in mm-hmm. terms of uh, you know structuring the sentence and going over it and um, just making sure it all flows smoothly. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Re- revision is key and, and reading as many different yeah. authors. I mean, it's like having different conversations with different people. Yeah. And each one of them will hopefully make you a better writer in yourself. Right, right. Interesting. Yeah. So just get just start doing it really in a way. It was what you're talking about. Read, start putting pen to paper. Yeah, you have to take the. I'm asking for horns. me because like people are like, "Why haven't you written a book yet?" And I'm like, "I don't know. I'm I'm doing all these videos. I'm doing a podcast now, man. It takes time." 
time. Like reading a, a, your own book a hundred times, like that's not something you can just bang off in an afternoon, you know? It gets you easier be, by like the 57th time. Yeah. You know these words. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, sometimes you you have to revise it a lot. Yeah. I mean, that's uh that's the that's the key. And some of my mm-hmm. books would have been better if I hadn't written them so fast. Right. I write a book almost every two years mm-hmm. and I have to write them under pretty tight deadlines. Mm-hmm. So it's like if I had more time, could I have made that book better? Right. Maybe. Yeah. But I still try to read them and write them uh, yeah. as as many times as possible. But being a perfectionist is overrated too, you know? Well, I'm I've not been, a I've been wanted no. to start this podcast like two years ago I was talking about it. I had to get it all perfect and it took. I should have just jumped into it further, right? Like sooner... But, uh, you know, maybe that's not really what you're saying, though. No, no, I wouldn't yeah. say I'm a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're a perfectionist, you're never going to get anything done. Right, right. right. You, yeah. At the end of the day, you just have yeah. to say that I gave it my best shot. Yeah. And that's it. You know, the, the buzzer's gone off. The right. 60 minutes is up. The game's over. Yeah. So you, it does help to have a deadline and say, you know, mm. by March 1st, I want to have written 10,000 words of this book. Mm-hmm. So now I just I have that deadline. I have to get mm-hmm. it done. And sometimes you just have to throw words on the paper yeah. and do that. But uh that's that's kind of the approach I use, right? So mm. I, 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 to me, I do most of the writing when I'm actually in the wilderness in my journal. Right. Oh, so you're actually not just making notes. You're actually doing the writing out there. No, yeah. That's I, cool. I've never been able to write in point yeah. form. I just like to write like full sentences. Yeah. So when I'm in the wilderness, I just mm-hmm. sort of tell myself I should do, mm-hmm. I'm alone. I might as well mm-hmm. do as much of the actual book writing here mm-hmm. as I can. Oh, no kidding. So, so that those, just makes it so much more authentic to well, now that I know that. That's awesome. But if I didn't do yeah. it that way, my books, you probably wouldn't, lo- they'd be not that good because right, I right. feel like. Yeah. The words flow more yeah. naturally when you're yeah. actually in the wilderness in the moment. Ah, okay. If yeah. I just came home with no journal or just yeah. point form and I looked at my computer, right. it'd be like, oh man, yeah. I just spent five hours and I typed one sentence. Yeah. Whereas when I get home, I take those journals and they're like precious because it's like, yeah. this is the book, right? This is the manuscript. Right. And then I type them up and I'll edit them as I'm typing them up for style and you know, uh-huh. I'll polish them and make them better. But it's still yeah. like that's the raw material, that yes. journal. And sometimes, like, yeah. the paragraphs, I just extract them. And it's like, yep, I don't think I could improve on what I actually wrote yeah. while I was shivering on that lake. Right. Stormbound. The writing's all, like, shaking. In the interior. <laughs> well, sometimes yeah. I do have to study yeah. my own thing and say, what yeah. is that? What is that letter? Cool. Oh, yes, yeah. That's an right. I. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. I try to make out what I did. Yeah. And usually the start of the journal is much neater. Yeah. And then by the end, it's getting more illegible yeah. as i went on but i imagine being alone for so long too i remember when i was on the show alone um one of the things that was helpful or even when i was on some of my soul my longest solo trip i think was 30 36 days and uh just i was filming a lot of being able to talk to the camera was almost like a good for your just your your mental well-being when you're out there because it's something that kind of put your thoughts out to do you find that helps when you're writing when you're out there to, to write your thoughts down and keeps you on track and keeps you more sane oh absolutely yeah talking yeah. to the camera is like talking to an audience so you don't right. feel alone anymore mm-hmm. but i'll do that too if i don't have time to write everything down like yeah. during the day and i ha- there's something critical i have to remember on, yeah. on where the falcon flies because i traveled through southern ontario southern quebec i try to remember people's names right like you gave me a ham that, sandwich i was amazed that you remembered all those people's names by the way so i'd either like, wow. i'd either yeah. whip out my uh, notebook and write yeah. down their name right there in the moment yeah. to make sure I got it right. Or um, or if I couldn't because of conditions or whatever, I'd use yeah. my GoPro right. and I would say, 
you know, it's June 4th and I really want to remember this for this book. I just want to mm-hmm. describe the look of this cemetery on this island mm-hmm. off, off Morrisburg, or I, I really want to remember the kindness that mm-hmm. Eileen did to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, she gave me Tim Hortons right. right here, right? So I would do that. And then, you know, at that night in my tent, I would write my journal mm-hmm. like normal, but I would also say, see GoPro recording for details, oh, okay. right? So, okay, just give yourself a little note there and you'd make a like a video log of it essentially in, in real time. Yeah, and I would do that less. too if I just wanted to describe like flora, right? right. Like, oh, what are all these mushrooms here? Yeah. Well, okay, I'm going to do like a basically a tour on my GoPro, which is mm-hmm. just for my own private use, describing all the trees on this portage. Mm-hmm. So when I go to write this chapter of the book, instead of just saying I portage through the woods, I can say... I portage through magnificent shagbark hickory, right? A wonderful old sycamore, yeah. yeah. And then I came around that and came to this nice big silver maple. So yeah. then it's like adds a little more color yeah. to the description in the book. Right. Um, so I'll use the cameras to sort of supplement the the journal notes as well. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Was it hard to be away from your family? I didn't. I somehow missed the fact until starting to read your book that you had kids because you have two pretty young kids. I noticed just on a two week trip when my kid was about the same age as yours, when you left for Labrador, when you, uh, on your journey from where the Falcon flies about the same age. And I remember finding that there was a shuttle coming in to my end point. And if I, and I'm paddling like a hundred kilometers straight through the night to get there so I could get home like two days early, that was like a two, two week trip. Was it hard for you? Were you missing? Oh, your absolutely. Kids? That's by far the yeah. hardest point. I mean, yeah. it's brutal, right? Yeah. Um, I, I have two boys. Uh, my oldest, Thomas, is turning three, and my youngest, yeah. Adrian, is only eight months. Yeah. And I mean, I, I had that mind. Luckily, I, I, I thought ahead, which was like, yeah. I don't have kids. Right. I don't have a family. I'm not married. Yeah. So I shouldn't really leave anything behind. I should push myself as hard as I can now. Right. And I did that for my journey across the Arctic the four months, knowing that it would be so much harder when I had a family. And indeed it is. I mean, the three months I did from Lake Erie to the Arctic was super tough. Yeah. And I don't think I would have done it, but my wife is actually the one who pushed me out the door and said, you have to go. Yeah. I I was like, well, I was like, what if I just did a journey through the Great Lakes and wrote a book about a canoe (laughs) trip to Kingston? She's like, nobody wants to read about a canoe trip to (laughs) Kingston. She's like, go to the Arctic and don't come back until you get there. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So she's the one who motivates me. (laughs) Amazing. And I'm always like oh but a month is so long i don't think i can go for a month let alone three and she's like that month that's nothing right right she's like so i'm lucky that she's so independent but it's definitely like yes it's very hard to be away from your kids but the way that i rationalize it is there's many jobs where people are forced to travel Mm -hmm. one of my friends who worked on the railroad percent yeah Yeah. you work on a mine you work in the oil fields you work on a ship uh, you have to travel, and I just see it as my job, right? Traveling I have to be, salesman as well. Exactly. Like, uh, you have yeah. to be away, um, but it makes the time when you're home all the more precious because you cherish mm-hmm. every moment. Mm-hmm. And it's like you don't take it for granted. It's like mm-hmm. now that we're together, mm-hmm. um, this is so special. We're going to live every right. moment yeah. um, that we're together because we have to be away some yeah. of the time. Yeah. And, I mean, I if I could... I would try to do shorter journeys, right? But it's it's harder, right? Like right. the Whisper on the Night Wind is a book I wrote about a shorter journey to Labrador, mm-hmm. and it's just harder to get the material you need to create a book mm-hmm. on a two to on three week journey, journey, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah. yeah, whether or not that, I mean, I said very candidly in the first chapter of of Where the Falcon Flies yeah. that shorter journeys um, do not pay as well. 
Right. Um, right. And if yeah. this is your career, if this is how you support yeah. your family, yeah. I mean, you could quit your job and get another mm-hmm. job, maybe. But I mean, this is the reality. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it's a good I, problem to have, eh? Like, I, I have the same issue. I'm, honey, you know, uh, geez, I'm going to have to get out there and do another month long uh, fishing trip with my brother. Yeah. You know, we got to pay the bills. You know, we got another kid on the way. And that's what I did before we had our second kid. I said, well, you know, I better go do a big trip. So I have 24 videos. It was a 24 five-day trip and i have 24 videos so i can be home the whole time editing when the baby comes yeah and you know so in a way it's it's kind of like awesome but it is harder to be away i'm a little once i found out you had kids i was like oh man this guy's you know because before when you didn't have kids i'm like he's doing all these incredible trips and uh you know more substantial than the ones i was doing and i'm like well he doesn't have kids so it doesn't count you know (gasps) but now you have kids and you're pulling it off which you know i before i had kids i wouldn't realize how much larger of a of a of a thing that is but also you're doing it for them now too well and i hope not to have to i mean i i hope i don't have to do any more long journeys for a long time to come like until they're done high school Right, I mean, I can't right. predict the future. I don't know. But I tell yeah. my wife that. I'm like, do you think I could still do a 5,000-kilometer journey when yeah, I'm 57? Yeah. She's like, no. <laughs> well, I, I haven't told my son Hudson yet, but when I'm 55, I'm planning on doing like a two-monther with him. He doesn't know. He's only two. <laughs> so when he's like 14, I'm going to try to do like, you know, Mackenzie River, Great Bear Lake, uh, maybe like the Wetzel to like the Copper Mine to like the Hood or something like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? You don't think that's doable at fifty five or what? Oh no, no that that you could well you could definitely do that. Take inspiration so? from Gordy Howe. He played until he was fifty two, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I mean you could. Yeah. I don't know. Nowadays yeah. you could probably do it until your seventies or eighties. Right. Just depends on how broken you're going to be at the end of every day, I suppose, too. Right. You'd have to be more patient, right? You yeah. probably wouldn't cover as many miles in a day. Right. Um, but slow and steady, you'd get yeah. there eventually. Yeah. And I think in those terms, like, I don't know, maybe I will end up doing another long journey while my kids are still young. Yeah. Um, what about a month, a month, two month and a half? Well, I'm going to be away for at least that long this summer. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I'm planning mm. around two months worth of journeys mm-hmm. um, in the Arctic mm. this summer. Oh, so really? That's okay. rough. Okay. But what you have planned, if you are you allowed to talk about it? Is it uh, uh, it's, it's actually more, yeah. more archaeology, ah, historical okay. research than a journey. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope to gather material for another history book. Yeah. Probably not for a number of years yet, maybe mm-hmm. 2027 publication. Mm-hmm. But it's, yeah, big, big history project that I'm working on. One of them I already mentioned is The Lost Explorer Who mm-hmm. Vanished Without a Trace. Right. Um, so retracing his route, hopefully writing a biography, bringing his yeah. story to life because it's never been published. Yeah. And some other uh, early archaeology yeah. in the Arctic going back a thousand years. That sounds like it'd be a cool show. Like fall, <laughs> trying to find someone who disappeared in the wilderness. Yeah, I mean that know? would be uh, maybe a documentary. I don't know yeah. at this point. I was uh, when I before I left, so I went down. I went the exact same route as you did when you went in through the headwaters of the of the Depa. So I started at Iron Arm and I, I did uh, Depa. Then I crossed over the George and over another highland, the Adlatok, into the ocean. But as I was, uh, I. Um, as I was crossing over between the George, between the Depaw and the George, about thirty kilometers up from the confluence, um, I didn't want to paddle all the way to the confluence because I had to go back up river. Um, I found what was 
good chance some gear by this other couple that had disappeared in there and never came back. And before we left that we were told, Hey, the last people to go through there disappeared. We never, no one found their canoe. Nobody found anything. So keep an eye out. If you can see, you know, some of their stuff, I mean, people thought maybe they just went and lived there. People thought, you know, there's all kinds of things. And sure enough at one of the campsites through there, I found like an old fishing rod and uh, you know, another couple of things that were left there. What year did they disappear? I think apparently in the seventies. Oh, in the seventies. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah apparently, it might have been might have been eighties, seventies, eighties. I'm not okay. exactly sure, um, but it was apparently a couple, and, and their they bodies were, were never found. Nothing. Yeah. I mean, it's just amazing. Disappeared. How often that happens in mm-hmm. Canada's wilderness? I mean, there's right. there's even more recent examples of people disappearing and not being found. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always make the news. So unless you're mm-hmm. in that area, you don't hear the particular story mm-hmm. about somebody vanished in these mountains yeah. in 2004 and nobody right. knows, right? Right. Um, yeah. But yeah, I've heard similar stories in different areas where it's yeah. like, yeah, somebody missed, disappeared, or down that river, the last one to go down in 2008 or. Yeah. 1994 or 1952. Yeah. There's many of those stories. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find it to be really dangerous? Do you find wilderness travel to be uh, uh, death defying at no, every turn? No, no, not at all. Yeah. I say that all the time to people. Yeah. I don't think they believe me. And maybe I'm undermining my own books mm-hmm. because I know that obviously people like the element of risk and danger. Mm-hmm. But I have always maintained that, you know, driving to your house today to do this podcast mm-hmm. is probably one of the most dangerous things I'm going to do in 2024. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. But it, yeah. statistically, that yeah. is true, right? Yeah. I mean, thousands of people every year in Canada alone yeah. are either killed or seriously injured behind the wheel. Mm-hmm. And with our winter, um, the risk factor just goes up. When I lived in yeah. Sudbury, I'd always say driving Sudbury to Timmins, like I used to do regularly in yeah. the winter, was like the riskiest thing I ever did. <laughs> so risky. And you yeah. would see cars and yeah. trucks off the road all yeah. the time, right? Yeah. All the time. People would get in bad accidents. Right, right. Whereas in the wilderness, partly I do it because I enjoy yeah. it. It's relaxing. It's fun. Mm. And it's like anything, right? Like, mm. yes, you could die in the wilderness if you're reckless and mm-hmm. a daredevil and an adrenaline junkie. Right. Um, but they could die behind the wheel on a Monday morning yeah. if they're a reckless uh, driver. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you're calm and careful and, yeah. you, you know, you're taking, you're, you're always, um, you know, taking the safer route, like mm-hmm. here's some rapids. I could probably run them. Mm-hmm. However, I'm alone, so I don't want to risk it. Even if it's a seven-hour delay to portage, I'm going to portage. That's what I do. Yeah, I describe that in my book all the time. Yeah. Portaging around. Yeah, I notice you I don't probably run. You don't dump. No. Yeah. Well, so I I, you, I don't dump a lot, but I definitely dump more than you do out there. I notice somehow you do thousands and thousands of kilometers, no dumping. You must have better rational decision making ability than I do. I, would I say. come close many times. Yeah, I yeah. came close on the George. Yeah. I came close on the Thelon. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, usually if I'm like, I think, mm-hmm. I think these rapids are, there's a possibility mm-hmm. I could flip my canoe or mm-hmm. swamp then I'm not going to risk it because I'm alone. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I want to live to tell this story. Right. So yeah. I'm going to portage um, around. Mm-hmm. And the, that's the truth. I mean, I wish more people knew that, which is mm-hmm. that actually going in the wilderness doesn't have to be some mm-hmm. scary, death-defying thing. Your odds right. of getting attacked by a bear are very, very low. Right. Your odds of something bad happening yeah. is really minimal if you're being smart and safe. Um, mm-hmm. And I know people probably don't believe that. They're like, but I read your book. You sound crazy. And it's like, well, <laughs> it only sounds like that because you haven't actually been in the wild with me. I right. mean, I lead guided hikes every fall yeah. and I've taken hundreds of people. And we've never had a single issue ever, yeah. not even a twisted ankle. Right. Um, but I mean, there are people whose personality and I have nothing against them. They're daredevils. They, right. they love doing huge like jumps yeah. on their snowmobile or on their yeah. um, 
snowboard or right. what, and it's fine. But it's yeah. like, yes, that mindset in the wilderness could result in trouble. Mm-hmm. And every year, thousands of people need to be rescued. Mm-hmm. Sometimes in it like happens. very yeah. well-trodden areas in like Banff yeah. National Park, there's like 4 million tourists yeah. and you weren't prepared. Well, it's more likely to be in those areas. It's it's not so much the guys that need to get rescued aren't the people with experience that are doing these deep wilderness trips. A lot of the time, it's guys in Banff that went off the trail to have a pee and got turned around and yeah, these like, kinds of things. Well, then, and they don't have any supplies. They don't oh, have a lighter on them. Yeah, or a bit, it's yeah. even more well-traveled to be mm-hmm. like Mount Washington, where like mm-hmm. five million tourists go a summer mm-hmm. um, in New England, but mm-hmm. they set right. off with like t-shirts and a shorts because yeah. it's a day in July, not knowing there could be snow yeah. as you get to the top. Yeah. And it's like, There's well, a- you have a t-shirt on, yeah. of course you're going to have to yeah. get rescued. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I mean, no, certainly, I mean, being in the wilderness, if you're smart, I mean, I yeah. always wear a life jacket. Right. So yeah. some people don't do that. But if you're right. wearing a life jacket, you've already greatly eliminated your right. risk. Right. Um, yeah. If you're portaging yeah. around the worst rapids, you've greatly yeah. eliminated your risk. Right. Um, bears. I do mm. all sorts of things to minimize mm. my risk from bears, like not going mm. along the seacoast in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. If I can at all avoid it where the polar bears mm. are, stay in land where there are no polar bears. And you bring comms too. You bring like an inReach or a sat phone or something with you? Most of the time, yes. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I... I think realistically, and I'm sure you can understand this because you've been in that scenario. I think a yeah. lot of people who haven't don't realize that that <laughs> that if you were actually in the most plausible right. scenarios, they would right. be very little use. Well, to they're, you. they're they're great for telling people where to find the body. Exactly, that's pretty mm-hmm. much all they're for. Because if you're right. flipping rapids. It's like, how right. much time do you have? You have maybe a couple of minutes to right. write the situation and get your head mm-hmm. back up above the waves mm-hmm. and get to shore. Otherwise, it's game over. Same mm-hmm. with hypothermia. Mm-hmm. How long are you going to last if you fall in that, you know, the Arctic Ocean? Right. I mean, maybe an hour. Yeah. If you're lucky. Yeah. Before even. you lose feeling. Yeah, yeah. I'm being generous. Right. And it's like search and rescue, even in rural Ontario, yeah. doesn't have an hour yeah. response time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I'm like, I remember being stuck in a blizzard, one of many, in the middle of the Angava Peninsula ripping wind was very hard to get my tent up and i'm trying to cut the snow block wall to sort of block the wind so i can get the tent up and after i'm working on this for hours the wind just changes yeah and i'm sweating if i don't get this tent up like probably just a little block snow shelter to crawl into isn't going to be enough and you know i had a sat phone or i had an in reach device and i remember just thinking like um and now i went on a loan the same year because i'm a glutton for punishment well, you know, who am I, to, you know, preaching the choir? But um, I remember just thinking, like, there's no way that on a loan, even though it was physically extremely hard, that I was ever in that much danger. Like they had, they have people that are going to save you, or, or you know, one of the shows, Survivor Man or Bear Grylls, and all these kind of like survival shows or things that people are doing. Where I was at that moment was like way more dangerous. And we're talking about like minimum like four days. Nobody, nobody's going to come rescue in the middle. Of a blizzard, you have to wait for the blizzard to end. So, yeah, yeah this is where the body's going to be, kind of thing, right? Um, so, there is an element of danger, but I would agree like your odds on getting murdered are one in 60,000 or something like that. There's been f- six people that have been killed by bears in Ontario in the last, or in, yeah, in Ontario in the last 100 and something years. You know what I mean? Um, so, I, I would agree there are dangers, but if you can, if you can be wise about them, well, there's dangers yeah. everywhere, right? There are yeah. dangers inside your house. Yeah. Uh, there are dangers. Anything we do, risk is inherent. Mm-hmm. So you might as mm-hmm. well do what you want, not let fear hold you back, right? That's yeah. my philosophy. Uh, yeah, it was just yeah, in no. Englehart, so, north of yeah. uh, Kirkland Lake. Yeah. And I had a couple of paramedics come see me. They liked mm-hmm. my books. And I asked them, you're paramedics. 
So I'm like, what's what's the jurisdiction you cover? Yeah. And what would be your response time to an emergency, a 911, yeah. on the far side of your jurisdiction? And they said an hour and a half. It right. takes 90 minutes to get to a person's house. Right. And it's like, I think people who live in rural areas yeah. or in more remote settings, they know that they have to be a little more self-reliant. Like right. if you had some injury in your house yeah. or you're working with power tools, yeah. um, you've got to stop the bleeding because... Mm-hmm there's not going to be an ambulance getting to your house in time before you bleed out. Mm -hmm. And I think some people who live in a place in say maybe a more urban area where the response time, emergency Mm -hmm. response time is five minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, Their mindset is a little bit different where help is only a phone call away. And I guess if you just live in a more rural area, it's sort of, it's a more natural transition to going into the wilderness where it's Mm -hmm. like, well, again, you know, you can't be bleeding to death for right. 48 hours. Right, that right. doesn't work. Doesn't. <laughs> um, so if yeah, I have yeah, an injury, yeah. well, first I have to make sure I don't get an injury. When I'm swinging yeah. my ax, I need to know exactly where my leg is so I don't hit it. Right. Um, or if I bleed, I mean, I have to be able to, I have to have the first aid skills and yeah. the equipment to cover yeah. up this wound so that 100%. I don't bleed to death. Yeah. And I mean, that kind of yeah. mindset, I mean, it more naturally leads the one to the other. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think there is a certain... Um, mm-hmm. uh, a mistaken impression that if mm-hmm. you're deep in the wilderness and you get into trouble, mm-hmm. you just grab your spot and somebody's going to come up around the bend. Even in Banff National mm-hmm. Park, one of the most popular national parks in Canada, where millions of tourists go every year, mm-hmm. as we know, the response time if you're in the backcountry can be more than 24 hours mm-hmm. before any park rangers actually get to your location. Right. So if you're in a, a yeah. acute, immediate danger. Yeah. You are dependent on yourself to get out yeah. of that situation with yeah. rapids, with drowning, with hypothermia, where mm-hmm. the clock is ticking, the sand is running out. Yeah. Um, you have to be able to get out of that situation and whether or not you have a satellite phone is irrelevant uh-huh. right? because you don't have that big a window of time. Right. And if you deal with the situation yeah. successfully, well, you've already changed out of your wet clothes, you're into your second pair of dry clothes, mm-hmm. which hopefully you stored in your vinyl waterproof bag. Right. You've got your fire going in less than 20 minutes. Right. You've got water boiling. Yeah. And in the p- space of about 30 minutes, you went mm-hmm. from, I'm in a life-threatening situation till I'm perfectly comfortable with my cup of tea around this campfire. Right. And I'm ready to go on yeah. for another month. Yeah. Um, so you have to be ready to like handle that situation in the moment and get yourself out of it. Because mm-hmm. if your mindset is... I don't have to worry about it because I have a spot or I have a satellite phone. Someone will come and rescue you. That's actually the more reckless scenario where you're more likely to end up now in some sort of tragedy because Mm -hmm. you were dependent on someone else coming to rescue you when that was never actually Mm -hmm. in the cards to begin with. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, yeah, I mean, your story of Yungava, I would agree 100%. I mean, that's the exact scenario you sketched out right. is yeah. the reality on the ground yeah. and, out there. And yeah, so just these things can't be thought of as a false sense of security. No, if anything, you know? it's going to lull you into a false right. sense of security and make you mm-hmm. take risks that you shouldn't. Right. And to, to be perfectly clear with what I'm yeah. saying here, mm-hmm. I don't want to think make people think I'm saying like, oh, you have to be Rambo. No, I right. think anyone can go out into the wilderness. Yeah and have a relaxing time and be in no more danger than they would be on a morning commute. But have some basic wilderness skills. Just like in the city, you know how to get from point A to point B in your car, know how to get a fire from sticks into flames. You know what I mean? It's not that much more complicated. And be smart about it, right? Right. Like um, always take the path of least Mm -hmm. resistance. Here's a cliff. Mm -hmm. I saw on TV somebody would climb this cliff. Well, no, that would be very foolhardy. Just go around the cliff on this nice level ground. (laughs) It'll be faster, easier, and there's no danger. Well, Um, some of those survival shows, like don't drink your own urine, drink the water. 
water. You know what I mean? Some yeah. of the some of the survival shows that like glorify things. Guys are going up the cliffs and rappelling down and it's drinking like, their own piss. That would be the worst and, thing possible right, to do right. in a survival scenario. Yeah. <laughs> and totally unnecessary. I mean, right. even with this camera angle, you can see that that cliff right. goes for like 100 meters. And right. then around it, you could just walk, bypass the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think some of that stuff gets people in trouble because I think it's this like crazy thing. But a lot of the time, it's just, it's beautiful out there. And actually, that's a... Uh, um, that's one of the things that's cool about traveling solo, um, which, uh, I found to be, I like traveling with people too, but I've done a lot of solo trips and I, I know you have, is just that sort of time that you get to reflect where there's not a bunch of chaos and portaging and everything. And in fact, it's way more calm and chill than most situations you're going to run into 99% of situations you're going to run into in society. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I think yeah. uh, some of the people I did expeditions with when I was younger, yeah, um, they fell into that exact pitfall where they mm. were expecting mm -hmm. I'm going into this huge adrenaline mm. surging situation in yeah. the wilderness Mm -hmm. uh, but when you get out there, you realize it's it's actually more of a repetitive routine, right? Where you're doing the same yeah. exhausting manual labor over and over again, yeah. and there is no particularly heart stopping or scary moment, right? Maybe there's one every couple of days, and it's mm -hmm. over in five minutes, right? right? When that bear charged you, yeah. But the rest of the time, if you don't love the natural yeah. world, if you don't love uh -huh. wildlife and plants and wild trees mm -hmm. and mushrooms, you're just going to find it boring, mm -hmm. and you're like, what am I doing here? I right. could be on a beach on a resort or mm -hmm. I could be in a bar. Yeah. I don't need to be here out in the wild. Yeah. So people actually just want to quit for that reason because right. it's actually not an exciting Hollywood movie yeah. most of the time. Like most yeah. of the time you're just paddling across a lake, uh -huh. portaging your canoe through the forest. Uh -huh. And yeah, when you do that long enough over like months, you get enough exciting moments yeah. that you can put it all together in to like book. an incredible epic story, a yeah. book or a film yeah. or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, but in between, there's just a lot of the daily grind, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think, yeah, if you have the wrong expectations, it might not be like you thought it was going to be. But uh, I remember you wrote something like this in, in, one, in your book too about being solo. And it's something that I've experienced too. It's like you kind of get into almost a meditative state. Sometimes when you're just going down the river and the weather's half decent and you know there's no waterfalls up ahead and you're just kind of making distance, the cadence of your paddle, and it's almost just like thoughts and ideas just kind of come to you that are really fascinating, reflections on different things, philosophies almost that seem to be coming from you know somewhere else. Like they almost seem to be coming from nature that you're not even thinking. It's kind of going like that. And I always notice something like that happening on my longer uh, solo trips and uh i mean no wonder you're able to put pen to paper out there and write such compelling sort of narratives or tell the story so much because i guess you're kind of experiencing that same sort of uh, uh thing when you're in, in nature as well yeah absolutely i mean it's mm -hmm. uh, it's amazing what you can come up with when you are free of yeah. all distractions yeah. I think that's something people struggle with in the modern world is mm -hmm. we're just bombarded by distractions. Like mm -hmm. we can't go more than five minutes yes. without looking at our phone yes. or being like, what happened yeah. on Instagram or what happened on the news? I have to get the mm -hmm. latest news. Um, and we have so many distractions mm -hmm. even in our day-to-day -day lives. And no matter mm -hmm. what walk of life you're in, what career, mm -hmm. it can be hard to actually get tasks done because it's yeah. like, oh, I just had another five emails come in. Oh, and now, right, that happens constantly. <laughs> it's my life story, man. So when yeah. you're in the wilderness, yeah. all of these distractions yeah. have been eliminated. They're not there. Yeah. You don't even have to think about it because they aren't there anyways. You couldn't yeah. check your emails even if you wanted to. Exactly. Um, yeah. So it's amazing what that does to your mind, how now mm -hmm. all of a sudden you can focus on one task Mm -hmm. with 100% clarity 
yeah. and see things from a fresh perspective. Yeah. And it, that's kind of like what I was saying, how I get most of my writing done for my books when right. I'm actually in the wilderness on the journey. Yes. I'm free of all distractions. The words are just flowing mm-hmm. on the page. I mean, mm-hmm. and I'm writing by hand the old-fashioned way in my mm-hmm. notebook, so there's not even a temptation to open up a browser mm-hmm. or check something out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that mm-hmm. that's an experience that, you know, maybe it's not everyone's cup of tea, and I'm not preaching against modern technology. It's all well and good. Mm-hmm. Everything has its place. Um, but many people could probably uh, benefit from that, just having fewer distractions. Mm-hmm. I know it's hard to, t- to tune those things out, but mm-hmm. when you do... It's amazing how much you can get accomplished, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just yeah. like I'm organizing my garage, yeah. but it took three times as long because I couldn't put my phone down. Oh my god! Or something yeah. like that, right? Where if yeah. you just have no distractions, it's like I'm just plowing yeah. through these tasks. Um, yeah. It's amazing, and I 100%. find it so relaxing just yeah. to have no news, no emails, no contact. Yeah. So again, to come back to what we were talking mm-hmm. about earlier with risk, people say, oh man, it must be so stressful doing what you're doing. Right. But the secret is actually, it's like, mm-hmm. no, what you're mm-hmm. doing is very stressful. Mm-hmm. I'm lucky I have like a stress-free job mm-hmm. uh, because even when you're dealing with hazards like a bear outside your tent, it's amazing how it clarifies the mind. It's like mm-hmm. so much of what actually stresses us out is things that have never actually happened, but we're worried about hypothetics, hypotheticals. What right. could happen next week? Yeah. What could happen financially? What could happen with the mortgage? You know, what could happen with this doctor's appointment? Um, but when you're in the wilderness, you don't, without even trying, you're focused on the moment. You're living in daytight compartments. Mm-hmm. Everything that happened before the day doesn't matter. Everything that can happen the next day doesn't mm-hmm. matter. All that matters is right now, mm-hmm. getting through mm-hmm. these rapids or getting away from this bear mm-hmm. or getting around this cliff. Um, mm-hmm. So you're just sort of living in that moment. Mm-hmm. And ironically, it's actually very relaxing. It feels like mm-hmm. all this weight has been taken off your shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's definitely something to be said for that. And I think people get a little taste of it when they do some sort of like heavy workout or they go mm-hmm. for a jog yeah. and they feel like, yeah, I found it relaxing doing that. Yeah. And it's kind of like that, just a little more extreme. Mm-hmm. And that's something I actually look forward to on the long journeys, right? Just the freedom from distraction, from everything else, mm-hmm. being totally immersed in this one project mm-hmm. and you lose yourself in the project. And you don't mm-hmm. necessarily have to go into the wilderness to experience it. I imagine artists experience something similar to it when it's like, you know, we're going to put on this play. And for the next six months, my life is this play and nothing outside of it. And all of this theater rehearsing, I mean, it's like I completely forgot about what was going on in the world. I forgot about everything else. I was too immersed in my project, my creative work, to worry about anything else. Um, Mm. And you can get that with any sort of task, like you're renovating your house, we're building a new uh, kitchen off the back or something like that. And it's like, you know, actually working with our hands and being immersed in this was ironically sort of relaxing because we didn't spend all the time worrying about all the stuff that doesn't actually matter right. um, yeah. that we do on a, yeah. on a daily basis the rest of the time. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like uh, that's sort of more of a, of, of a natural state, uh, a natural state, would you say? Like to, when, you, when you feel like that, you're not modern world bombarded by this, that, and the other, but when you're kind of in nature, you're kind of in the moment more. And that's, I think, probably what we're sort of supposed to uh, be like. Oh, kind absolutely. of state we're supposed to be in, you know, like we talked about at the beginning of this chat, you know, it hasn't been that long at all since humans started living in society. And, and how do we unpack, you know, uh, thousands and thousands of years of evolution into such a quick change um, when we're being bombarded by things. And I think 
part of the reason doing these big trips is so amazing is because it forces you to kind of be in that natural state and having the book uh, at the same time as well is, is, and sharing it with people is awesome. I can kind of relate to that. Um, I have to, you know, because I am doing some filming on my trip, but um, uh, you know, I'm not writing a novel out there. So just reflecting on what you did and writing, it just sounds like such a, 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 an awesome process to be part of, a larger adventure too, man. So I just, you know, I wanted to say, man, thanks a lot for, uh, for coming out and, uh, for having a chat and driving all the way up here and sitting down with me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks yeah. for having me on the show. No problem, Adam. Hopefully we can do it again sometime.